see yeah that's a sweet spot so just like make love to that foam right there all right (laughs) i love foam stew seagal style that's right (laughs) i did not fucking know that i couldn't sleep about it i was like what (laughs) i mean it's not a bad thing for me because you know i did work for a porn company Oh, for like two really? weeks, I could, uh, not even two weeks. I just couldn't stand it, and I just left. After no that. way! Yeah, yeah. Are you serious? I was so like, you know, it's too so, much. I was so broke. I needed a job, and they were looking for an editor. No way! And so I, uh, edited, you were editing. I was editing, man. That's so I saw crap. everything behind the scenes. This was before Viagra, so oh, they dude. had this thing called fluffers. Yeah. So uh, you, oh, at least you didn't have to fluff. Oh, did I know. I was watching. Did, oh. <laughs> I was watching all that. Are I mean, I had serious? to edit all that shit out, you know, so. Oh, that's so weird. Yeah. That's interesting, though. Dude. That's a great sneak peek. Yeah, I, I, saw, I saw a girl, like, shit all over herself, too. Are you serious? Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, fuck, I don't want to do this. I, I had a girlfriend at that time. I'm like, and you're I, just, was, I, was, I was going home feeling to, like. I, you I had to take a break I, for a little while? Yeah, like, I can't deal with. Feeling with dirty? The, with, with, yeah. <laughs> I was just shit in my head. And I'm like. Okay, okay, dope. Let me uh, let me just check the voice real quick. All right. Okay. So, yeah, as I mentioned, and as we know, your story is just insane. So we'll uh, we'll try to go all the way up until like kind of meeting Sarah, and then Philippines, and then we'll just leave a cliffhanger for the audience. So yeah, um, so we can come back and oh yeah, I do got, that. I have a lot of cliffhangers. I just got a couple of calls yesterday for new projects. Are really interesting. So yeah, dude, next year is gonna be crazy. It's gonna be crazy. Right? 2023 was a very laid back year. Right. 2024, I, I'm like petrified right now. I know. About it. I know. Cause yeah. you got to go back and. And everything's piggybacking off each other. Just everything schedules are mismatched right now. Really? So different projects happening at the same time. So. Oh, dude. It's going to be fun. It's going to be crazy. When, when it rains, it pours. I know, right? Exactly. Your life of like a roller coaster life of ups and downs. Yeah. My biggest thing, I mean, what bumps me out the most, I mean, I love the job and I can do 10 of it at the same time, but I can see my kids as much. I know. Right. Yeah. Just got to get Sarah to come out there a lot. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. With the kids. (laughs) Bring the kids. All right. So we're going to give a little shout out to the daughters as well in the intro. So any questions? Let's do it. (laughs) All right. I love it. Let's do it. Action director. Here we go. Exactly. Good afternoon. And welcome back to another episode of Firelight Chats, where we broadcast the most super, natural, and compelling voices and stories from our Space Lab studio here in Da'an, Taipei, Taiwan. As we near the end of 2023, let us take a sumptuous and selective stroll down memory lane as it pertains. Last year, in 2022, we kicked off our first season of the Firelight Chats podcast with professional basketball player Lester Prosper, handsome boy who hoops all around the world 
including in the Republic of the Philippines, where he is much loved and where our guest for today was born and raised once upon a time in the capital city of Bacolod, of the province of Negros Occidental, in the region of Western Visayas of the Filipinas. In episode 005, James C. shared stories from his time at the prestigious West Point Military Academy and several tours of duty thereafter. Our guest for today's episode successfully passed the rigorous series of tests written, physical, and medical neuropsychiatric required to enter the equally premier and powerful Philippines Military Academy, PMA, which was patterned after the U.S. Military Academy at West Point in upstate New York, a place I drove by often on little getaways from the city while living for over a decade in New York City. When he entered PMA, he was still but a teenager. During one of the most tumultuous times in recent Philippine history, like Taiwan, the Philippines was placed under martial law, with both countries officially ending their respective periods of authoritarian rule around the same time in the late 80s. This pivotal memory also marked for our guest one of the highest points of promise for his future trajectory, followed by one of the most agonizing decisions to leave his country and career behind, and the first big crash in a life full of explosions, epic scenes, and plot twists fit for the big screen. In episode 40, we were joined by my soul sister and Filipina superstar Roxanne Barcelo, who acted in a movie directed by our guest for today, starring Sarah Chang of episode 48, who, incidentally, went on to marry that director and become besties with Roxanne. Sarah, as listeners and viewers well know, is a wushu champion, an action movie star among many other things. Not to be outdone, her husband is a Muay Thai world champion, a founder of many martial arts academies, trainer and coach to some of China's biggest MMA stars, including the current two-time champion Zhang Wei Li, sports hall of famer, stunt coordinator, writer, actor, and director. As if all that weren't enough, he's also a father of two Taiwanese Filipino or Filipino-Taiwanese young girls who love Play-Doh and Slime, a surfer from SDSU who managed to infiltrate my UCSD alma mater's neighboring yet exclusive surf territory of Black's Beach, a coffee lover, computer programmer, patent holder, successful ex-IT professional, budding real estate mogul. And as an actor, he is currently in the middle of production on a huge, big budget Netflix series where he stars as one of the vilest characters known to the universe. Speaking of teasers, similar to episode 37 of this season with DJ Caitlin of ICRT, this episode will officially be part one of two, or should I say at least two, with both guests scheduled to come back next season for a follow-up deep dive, as there's just too much to sweet talk about. Stay tuned, for there is much more 
in store for 2024. So with that, here we find ourselves at episode 54. As we approach the end of the second year and season of Firelight Chats, we will see just how much of this merry man story we can cover or uncover today. As we sit surreptitiously cozy, Mocha and me by the fireside in our Space Lab studio with the shadows of last Christmas, dancing wildly off the caves of our deepest imaginations into the very heart of our uncertain future, as we get lit and freestyle chat, create, connect, communicate, and indulge in the stories of this crazy life well lived with our guest for this latest episode of Firelight Chats the one and only Mr. Vincent Soberano. Hoo-yah. Hoo-yah. What's up? What's up? What's up? It is my honor, sir. Thank you for gracing us with your presence. Well, it is my honor as well. So I'm really excited. I am super excited. That was a crazy intro because you are a crazy man. I am crazy man. You are a crazy man. People don't even know. Yeah, yeah. They're going to begin to know. But we are just <laughs> scratching the surface yeah. of this insane story, this insane life of yours. Yes. How do you do it, sir? What I is your secret? I, I ask myself the same question all the time. I look back and I say, how the hell? How, how did I get here? And what was, what was all that in my entire life? I mean, I look back and I, and I often see a completely different person a guy that I actually I don't represent or know anymore. You know, I know. I, I've changed it completely. It's like, I feel like I've lived like so many lifetimes and every lifetime, it's a whole different character. It's like a movie, you know, like a whole different character after that movie's done, move on, take on another one, whole different character, another lifetime. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, that's perfect. Uh, that's yeah. why you became a director. Yeah. Yeah. And an actor. It's one of those things too. I look back in life and I see all these different chapters and lifetimes and I tell myself, would I go back to that? Mm, no, it's, <laughs> I don't regret them. I just don't want to go back to them because it's done. It's over with. The legacy is there. It's, you know, I mean. Exactly. On yeah, to the yeah. next one. On to the next one. Just be better than the first one. You know, that kind of thing. I know. Yeah, yeah. People think I'm exaggerating here, but you will see. You will see that this man has really done what he says. He doesn't talk much. He just does. He goes from one thing to another throughout his whole life, starting all the way back, as I mentioned in the intro, in the Philippines, Visayas, Bacolod. Can you tell us about this life of yours? I was born and raised in Bacolod. Uh, they call it the sugar capital of the Philippines. Yes. Uh, mainly because about I don't know, 60% of people, especially families in Bacolod, were involved one way or the other in the sugarcane industry. Mm. As a matter of fact, my mom, even though she's, you know, she wasn't a planter or anything like that, she was working as the chief of research, chief scientist for a laboratory that analyzed soil samples for sugarcane plantations. So Ooh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so so a lot of things like that. You know, um, my dad was a lawyer. Uh, he was a government lawyer. Worked as a DA, you know, moved up to uh, higher positions of government, you know, prosecution, mm. basically. Uh, it was great in the courtroom. I was recently watching this uh, this series on Netflix called uh, Lincoln Lawyer. Oh, I haven't uh, seen it yet. But and this guy is like list. a master in litigation. 
yeah. master in the courtroom. And I'm like thinking, I also sit in uh, litigation procedures with my dad, you know, in there litigating and prosecuting. And this guy is good. Oh, yeah. you got to witness your dad doing yeah, that from a young he age. Is good. Yeah. He is scary good. That's where you get it from. He's a fighter too, but just in the court. Yeah. You yeah. are like all outside of the court. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it was. Has it he was ever had to protect you? Um, oh, I, that's a whole other story. My dad is actually, you know, he made a lot of enemies because of his job. I know. You know? And he's been assaulted many times. Dude, in the Philippines, especially yeah. at that time, yeah. as we'll yeah. get to, right? That's yeah. actually why you had to leave the country. Yeah, yeah. But people don't know. The Marcos time. Yeah, yeah. That's it's, where you grew up. Very confusing times. Didn't really know whether we had the right alliances or not, but we had alliances. So we just had to go with the flow, which is what prompted me to move to the U.S. Right. What was that time like throughout your childhood? Well, to tell you the truth, I grew up during the Marcos regime and martial law was always there as long as I can remember. As a young boy, I, didn't, I really didn't. I mean, I know there's a lot of hoopla. A lot of people talk about human rights, all that stuff and all the bad things about the Marcos regime. I heard about them. Mm. I read about them. I just haven't seen any, you know, so I am not witness to any of that stuff. And I, I don't want to sound political or anything like that because I'm not. I don't really care. But that was probably some of the most peaceful times I've ever experienced living in the Philippines huh. growing up, like That's when I was in elementary and in high school. Okay. You know, so I don't know if it was the government, maybe because of martial law that everything was strict mm. and made everything safer for us. But I can't say anything bad about my experiences during that time. It's all um, sugar. It's all sugar, man. Exactly. It's all sugar. <laughs> yeah, the, the sugar economy was crazy. People, were I know. Just, families were just getting super, super, super rich. I attended La Salle, La Salle grade school and uh, high school. And La Salle is like the premier private school. Okay. At the time. And at that time, it was just a, it was a Catholic boys' school. I would say 90. 90% of the kids there oh. you know, were kids of like sugar, you know, sugar. From the sugar industry. Yeah, sugar magnates, tycoons, whatever. I mean, oh, wow. so That's like super rich man. It was like, it was secretly tough for me because my family's not rich like those kids. Those kids, mm. they, they own, their families own like right. hundreds, on the land, hundreds of acres of uh, sugar cane plantations and stuff like that. And uh, they all drove their own cars and all this stuff, you know, and uh, their family at one point didn't even have one. Oh. So, I mean, it was just tough. And I think that's what made me who I am today in many ways. Mm. It made me explore what I can do to measure up because mm. I didn't have any money to measure up. Right. You know? So how do I lift my self-esteem? Not for them, but for myself. How do I not feel so inferior to everyone else, you know, in school? Because they were like 10 times richer than, right. than we were. We weren't even rich. We were right. just normal. Like my parents government were workers. Go government workers, government yep. employees. And they, they struggled. My family struggled to keep us in those schools because it's very expensive. Yeah. It's very, very expensive, you know. But my mom and dad felt that, you know, having that network of, you know, I guess rich kids and all that mm, stuff will, mm -hmm. will go with me for the rest of my life, you know. Right. And just, and also the level of education too. Yeah. Yeah, because it was so elite. Of course, they can hire the best teachers and all that stuff. Mm. But anyway, I um, I was able to explore my own abilities and talents. And because of that, I actually shined when I was in high school and even in elementary school. I realized I was a good writer. I really pushed on that because I didn't have any money to party or anything else. So I ended up becoming the editor-in-chief of our 
of our school paper when I was in elementary. I ended up becoming editor-in-chief of the school paper in the yearbook when I was in high school. I pushed myself as an athlete. By the time I was in high school, I was the team captain of the karate team and the track and field team. I played on the soccer varsity because we had military training too. So the, the whole high school was basically formed into sort of a battalion of cadets. Okay. I was a commander. I was a commander of the entire corps. There were like two battalions and you know, I was the regimental commander. Oh, wow. Yeah, so, <laughs> so I excelled in so many different ways in terms of leadership and in terms of writing, in terms of sports, because it was my way to focus on things that I have control over rather That's than things that I didn't. Exactly. You know? And that became my mantra for the rest of my life. You know, I would never let one handicap or one weakness or whatever slow me down. I will always latch on to whatever strengths I have and go with it. I love it. Go where it takes me. Yeah, know? I mentioned in the intro, the connection to the Philippines, our very first episode was Lester Prosper, a professional basketball player who played quite a bit in the Philippines. And one of the big things in his podcasts when we talked was his mantra is control what you can control. Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. And that's it. Yeah. Just control what you can control. Yeah. Everything else, don't worry about it. But whatever you yeah. can control, take that into your own hands, yeah. into your own destiny. And that mantra, for me, it came from my experience in martial arts too. Right. You know, so if you are, for example, if you're grappling with someone and he locks up one arm, you don't struggle and try to free the arm right. because you might break it. Right. It's already locked up. Mm -hmm. You know, but what do you have? You have another arm that's exactly. free. Yeah. That's what you use. Forget the one that's locked up. Right. Use the one that's free. I mean, that's how it is in martial arts, right? So, exactly. you know, so, and in life, it's the same way. It's the same way. You just mentioned it. When did this martial arts fascination or interest first spawn? I was born with a whole bunch of ailments. I was not like the fittest, healthiest kid. When I was born, I had rheumatic heart. I had heart murmurs. I had sinusitis, asthma. I was flat-footed, which it was amazing that I passed the medical exams for PMA. Right, right, right. Because they don't allow flat-footed people. But I had to like sort of cheat it a little bit. You know? Wow, so, yeah. that's interesting. Yeah, I researched it and I figured out how to- How to put arch how, in there. Yeah, how to put arch in there. <laughs> really? Absolutely. I had to like, and I practiced it for a year. No. Just so I could take that test because I knew what was going to happen. But anyway, backtrack. Back I wasn't the healthiest kid. So I spent my early childhood doing arts because my parents like promoted arts with me because, you know, they felt that, you know, going into sports may be detrimental to my health. Mm. So I took art classes. My mom like really helped me discover my writing talents. So I'm really grateful because I found out I'm actually a natural born artist mm. and arts has always been part of me. But of course, being a boy and going to a boy's school, I was being bullied. I was a small kid. I didn't look like the rest of my classmates because I look too Chinese because I'm part Chinese. I get teased at a lot. My dad, when I was eight years old, he put me in martial arts just for self-defense and for confidence, not so much for sport. I took Tang Soo Do, Taekwondo, and didn't really enjoy it. You know, I, I mean, it was okay. I mean, I was a kid, you know, I didn't last long. I probably lasted like maybe a year because kind of lost interest. You know, mm. it, it wasn't that exciting. It wasn't until I was 10 years old and I saw a fight, a Muay Thai fight in Thailand. I remember like telling my dad right away, dad, this is what I want. Mm. He was like surprised. He goes, I, I thought you didn't like martial arts. I'm like, no, dad, this is what I want. This is it. I want to learn this. Lumpini Stadium. Yeah. yeah. And then uh, 
my dad was basically like, okay, well, I'll try to find someone to help you out. And, you know, we found like a Muay Thai coach, you know, actually a Thai guy that lives in the Philippines. And I started training with that guy. At the same time, it really rejuvenated my love for martial arts. My dad would take me to this double feature Kung Fu movies, you know, um, every weekend. That was mm. my thing. That was our bonding thing. We'd go watch this like double feature movie. Oh, stuff. Yeah, awesome. Like back to back martial arts. And yeah, stuff. yeah, and yeah. My entire life, my entire childhood was basically focused on that. The most I can remember in my childhood was watching Kung Fu movies and dreaming of becoming one of those guys, right. those actors and training Muay Thai, you know? So, so from 10 years old, you were training Muay Thai. Yeah. It really left a indelible mark in my uh -huh. entire life, which I still carry up to now. There's the one thing that never went away, that never changed my love for martial arts and movies. Right, right, right. But you said that your father, you know, initially put you in there because basically you were being bullied and it was like a self-defense thing, A self-defense right? thing. He didn't know that I wanted to compete. That was out of discussion because I might have a asthma attack or something like that. Right, you know, right, right. Or, or a heart attack. So competing was not in the book. So I actually did it in secret. He was thinking I was doing self-defense, you know, classes, but I actually was training for competition. You were litigating in that. Yeah. In that and ring. I actually started competing like around, maybe around 10 or 11 years old. I started going to like small competitions and, um, that's like Thailand, right? Young yeah, kids. Yeah, young they're kids. really just fighting yeah. from an early age. Exactly. Except I wasn't fighting for money. I was fighting for, for passion. Wow. Yeah. Joy. I love it. I just realized that being in the ring, win or lose I just felt really good about myself I felt better than everyone else kind of thing you know okay. like it, yeah, it, yeah, it yeah. stoked my ego whether I won or lost you know the fact that I stepped in the ring bravely and yeah. stood up against someone yeah I made just you felt feel like, like Superman I feel like Superman I'd walk amongst my friends you know this little guy amongst some bigger guys and you know and feel like you know what you yeah. guys can't hurt me exactly. the way those guys did in the ring, you know. I fought older kids too, older guys, you know. So I was not afraid of anyone, especially my age, especially in my school. Right. You know? So, yeah, and uh, it really boosted my self-esteem amongst everything else. You know, being a boy, especially, you know, Filipinos. Filipinos have a very macho, you know, culture. Kind of culture, you know, so. Exactly. It's a land of many Pacquiao too. Yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> even before that, I also grew up in Bacolod, which is the heart of the martial arts I world guess, yeah mecca central philippines is the visayas. martial arts mecca. yeah visayas is like the martial arts mecca of the philippines okay yeah, that's where the that's where the baddest mothers arnie's come from. yeah arnie's baston kali's all that stuff came okay. from there, yeah. so it was a big thing you know very macho culture and uh, growing up i needed to have that i didn't have the money to back it up right but i had the fists and the feet you know and the elbows and the knees exactly yeah, so yeah <laughs> Yep. Put a little arch in those feet and, exactly, and yeah, throw yeah. it hard. And that's also what made me like start focusing towards a career in the military because, you know, as a martial artist, you know, everything was martial mm. to me. Everything was <laughs> fighting, combat, being a warrior. And it naturally progressed into not just military, being a leader. Right. And so when I was in high school, I became the commander of the entire military cadet corps. How many students was that? In our high school. Probably around 500, 600 students. It was oh, a small, it's small because okay. it's very elite. It's private school and it's all boys. That's amazing. Yeah. So you controlled like all the grades as well. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's so, cool. 
Did you guys ever like battle with the other private schools in the different regions? Yeah, they were. Oh, yeah, really? Yeah, they were. Yeah, in no fact, uh, even like amongst the La Salle schools all over okay. the, all over the country, every year there's what they call Little Olympics. So each of the schools we would have like an Olympic event, elite uh, Olympic battle. Exactly. Yeah. No yeah. way. La Salle was so elite that they really only had one other or a couple of other rivals. Okay. Yeah, but mostly they kind of like rivaled each other. Mm. So. Did you ever get into street fights? I did in the beginning. And most of it is because I, <laughs> I hate to say it, it's because of me, because I wanted to prove something to myself. Oh, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah. So I got into a lot of street fights, you know, when I was younger and well, hell, even when I was in college, you know, in the, in the States. <laughs> I just, oh, really? Yeah, okay. Yeah. We'll get to that later. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, but it didn't really last long because every time I remember every time I get into a street fight, yeah, sure. I'd get all jacked up and like, you know, I beat someone up and all that stuff. And then like a day later, I'd regret it. Right. You feel I'd bad. I feel bad. I feel bad. Like I just beat up another human being that had no freaking idea that I'm a walking weapon. Right. You know, I right. Mean, I feel like a bully. And I feel like if someone like me did that, I'd be like, you come face me, get in the cage, get in the ring. And, you know, let's see what you're You'd made of. You want to punish yourself. You know, I want to punish myself, <laughs> exactly. right? Exactly. Like, yeah, yeah, I yeah. felt bad. And then. You just got to a point where it just didn't interest me anymore. I used to have a bad temper growing mm. up and I still have a bad temper, but I've learned to channel, channel that, channel that exactly. to something different, you know, creatively, creatively. Yeah. Yeah. You know, sometimes I do things like if someone pisses me off, like says something to me in my head, I'd start coming out with scenarios mm. in the, for a movie. I'm like, oh, that looks like a good scene in the movie. Let me remember that. You know? Right. And I'll this is what this I right would here, do in the but... movie. Yeah. I would distract myself. You know <laughs> yeah, what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then, you know, like minutes later, I'm, I'm all fine. Yeah. Cause yeah. you got a new yeah. script. Yeah, I got that. a new script. Absolutely. Exactly. A new scene. And, and I and I took my revenge on this guy in my script. Exactly. Yeah. Put it on the so, big screen. Put it on the big screen. Thanks you know? to you, so, mother. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You just gave me a, a nice scenario. <laughs> exactly. You know? So I'm using that. Oh man. Okay. So when did you decide to kind of take these tests for PMA, this prestigious military academy in the Philippines? Well, growing up in the Philippines, being especially martial law and everything, right? So military was everything. They're the most powerful organization in the entire country. For sure. Especially They're, a country I mean, with martial law, right? Oh, yeah. They, they overthrow <laughs> governments, they, yeah. you know? Um, they and, literally try to overthrow their own government, right? Yeah. And because times. in the Philippines, there's only one military academy. In the U.S., there's several, right? Every True. branch of service has its own. The Philippines only has one. From out of that elite graduating class comes the future generals of every single branch of service, including the police. Oh, you know, man. so so imagine the power of the alumni from of the this PMA, PMA. Yeah, the PMA alumni. They call it the most powerful brotherhood in the Philippines. Because, yeah, one of the most powerful brotherhoods in the world. Probably, because they're everywhere. Yeah. So you know, and because of that, the PMA has always been the most prestigious, sought after school, career, whatever that almost every young boy would, you know, would, every macho would think young about. boy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yep. So I remember like the first time I went to PMA, I have a cousin that was graduating there and we went to attend his graduation ceremonies. Mm. What is the town? Is Baguio. Baguio. Yeah, Baguio. Up yeah. in the mountains, Up right? in the mountains. Yeah. 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 It's beautiful up there. It's a, this, this fort that sits up on the top of the Right, because that's where the U.S. were based, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. They had that academy there. Okay. And I remember attending the um, graduation of my cousin. I watched the cadets marching in full uniform and all that stuff, walking around. I'm like, dude, this is what I want to do. <laughs> this is what I want to be. This just, just became my new dream ever. And so that I was like in 
seventh grade, I think, when that happened. And from that point on, I never stopped dreaming about going to the academy. It okay. became like an obsession. My, my, my obsession. Yeah. So in my fourth year in high school, that's when I took entrance exams for okay. PMA. I remember my mom, because she knew, my mom's like super supportive of everything I get into. And when I, I told my parents I wanted to go to PMA, they knew that academically it was going to be challenging for me. I'm not like naturally academically, you know, gifted kind of mm. thing, right? So one year before I took the exams, I started reviewing. We would buy like samples of old tests mm. just so we have an idea what the test would be. And we would drill it over and over again. I remember like every afternoon, my mom would make me take the test. Wow. She'll, she'll, she'll rewrite the test just a little bit in many different ways and make me take it over and over and over again. I mean, we would do that all the time. That's impressive. Go Mama Soberano. Yeah, she yeah. was, uh, I mean, she cracked the whip in that one. Every week I would have to take the test for like the rest of the year, you know? So our focus is basically to pass the written the test. The written test. Because that's the hardest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when I took the written test for PMA, 11,000 young men 11, took, took the test. No yeah. way. That's out crazy. Of, out of that 11,000, only 900 passed. <laughs> out of that 900, I scored number three. Oh. I was, the th I, was the, I was number three in the entire nation. No way. Yeah, From yeah. this academically yeah. not gifted kid. Yeah, yeah. But who yeah. just knows how I, to train. I scored the highest in the English portion. Whoa. Yeah, yeah. so yeah, I scored like, it was almost, I think I had the perfect score. That's crazy. I was actually offered a, um, a stint to go to the U.S. Air Force Academy. Because usually the top five scorers of every class, number one guy goes to West Point. Oh, Number two guy. Yeah. And the number two guy goes to Annapolis. Okay. And yeah. number three guy goes to Colorado. Colorado yeah, for Air Force. For Air Force. Yep. And number four and five goes to Coast Guard Academy. Okay. But, wow. Um, so you went to Colorado. No, I didn't. I did not want to go. Oh, really? I didn't want to be in the Air Force. Oh, I was I so set because of martial arts. I was so set to becoming a soldier. I wanted to be wanted as to to hardcore. Point. Yeah. If I got West Point or even Annapolis, okay. I would have gone. Because oh, Annapolis, I, I would have been a Marine. Right. I could have gone because, still cool. or, or a SEAL. You can still fight. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I wanted to fight. I wanted yeah. to be a foot soldier. I didn't want to be flying airplanes. Plus, I had a fear of heights. I That's still do. Interesting. Even though I've jumped out 64 times off an airplane. Really? <laughs> I've had 64 times. Out of fear. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, not fear, but out of excitement, I get to shoot someone when I get down to the Right, 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 right. Yeah. right. <laughs> no way. Yeah. So you gave that up. Mm, I gave it up. I deliberately failed the test. Really? Because we, we had to retake a written test. We had to go to the U.S. Embassy in Manila, basically all these candidates, and we had to take some kind of test, some kind of like IQ test or something like right. that. I was not happy. I sat there staring at the test thinking, imagining my- imagining I my, be a pilot. Yeah, imagining myself. I have only one lifetime and I'm going to be a pilot. That's so I'm gonna, crazy. I'm getting an Air Force guy. That's like a dream for so many young boys too. But for you, it was like- For nah. me- I wanted an M16, I man. I wanted an M16 with a grenade launcher. That's what I wanted. Boots yeah. on the ground. Boots in the ground. That's what I want, you know? Dude, and, uh, that's funny. Yeah, so, yeah. I think Sarah mentioned actually during her podcast that one of her dreams is to fly, which is pretty hilarious that I'm yeah. hearing this right now. She flies a lot. Yeah, right. Just, she can fly. But for you, you almost had a chance to shoot down other planes, but no. Well, a lot of enough. people didn't realize that, which I actually knew, even as a kid, is I have a fear of heights. I think it started after I fell off a guava tree. 
Oh, okay. And got, and got knocked out. And when I woke up. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. When I woke up, I remember anytime I'm like standing on a ledge or something like get that. Get dizzy. I, oh yeah, maybe a little bit dizzy, but my legs would start to give. Just get all weak from the waist down. All tingly and everything. Like I can convince myself that I'm totally fine. There's, you know, there's rails as well. I'm not going to fall, but no. It's oh, still, yeah. It's interesting. It, it's so overwhelming. That phobia is real, man. Those damn guavas. Yeah, those damn guavas. <laughs> Sometimes as a kid, I would deliberately like perch on something just to see if I can get over it. Right. Never. But still, Never. to this day. To this day. Those guavas hit you hard. Yeah. I remember my first combat jump from an airplane. You know? Okay. And uh, it's a static jump. So we hook up the line, right? And then, you know, when the jump master goes, go, 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 go. We just run down and jump out the side of the airplane. Basically. Okay. I remember just like telling myself, you know, it's totally controlled. I'm with a bunch of other people. Just enjoy the view. Let's not think about the height, you know. Yeah. And think about something else. I'm holding a weapon. I'm like, whatever, you know, that kind of thing. And it was just, it would just happen and right. done. And then next thing you know, we're back up in the plane again. Another day, Go jumping again. again, you know, again and again and again, you know. But, oh, wow. But yeah, but it's not so much the jumping that gets me all week. It's just standing on a ledge, on the ledge. overlooking a huge height that Dude, gets me. That's so if I had to stand at the door, you know, <laughs> yeah. and I knowing that I have no straps, no nothing. Right. It just know, freaks you out. Freaks me out. Right. Yeah. yeah freaks me out. Wow. And you yeah. still jump many times. Yeah. Out of and, that plane. And, and then even like as an actor, I do stunts. I get rigged, I get harnessed, I jump off, you know, but whatever. Yeah. Still. But still, it's oh, know, wow. uh, that feeling never never goes away. My mind is stronger now as an adult. Right. I can totally tell myself it's totally okay. But the, the feeling never goes away. Same exact feeling every okay. single time. Huh. So that was the written test. And it whittled down from 11,000 to 900? To 900. Then from 900, we took the physical tests. Okay. From 900, I think it went down to like 700, okay. something like that. And then we took the medical tests where, you know, the flat-footedness and all the other stuff. And then they even like narrowed it down to 600. So by the time we entered the academy in our first year, there were 600 of us. Okay. And out of that 600, I think only about maybe three or 400 survived the first year. Oh, the plebe year. The plebe year. Yeah, that is one of the most, I don't care what people say, that was probably one of the most torturous year of my life. Yeah. One single year of torture, man. I know. One of our previous guests, Rashid Hami, who's also a director, a French director, his film here, uh, it's called Pour la France, but it's based on a true story of his brother, younger brother, who died in one of France's preeminent military academies mm. called Saint-Cyr during their hazing. Or yeah, yeah, yeah. We had a huge attrition rate. I mean, we... We would average one or two cadets a year die from hazing. From hazing. Yeah. And then we would have at least like maybe 50 to 60 cadets that will go AWOL because they'll <sighs> just run away. They'll just take off. They'll just take off. They couldn't stand it anymore. They'll just you know sneak out and then never come back. Never come back. Yeah. 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 It's probably a sensitive topic, but what about suicide? Um, you know, never heard of one. Really? Uh, it's not a Filipino thing, I think. That's interesting. They'll yeah. just run away. Yeah, they'll just run away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, they'll just run away. Uh, suicide was never a thing. I don't remember at all a single. That's interesting. Know, single okay. One. Yeah. I've known of suicides growing up. It's always drug related. 
Okay. Someone's too strung up and decides to, you know, whatever. But but not in the military. Not in the military. They just do it or they run the hell They're, away. Yeah, they do it or they run away. <laughs> run for the sugarcane mountains. Exactly. You know, some others will just resign, but it's really, really hard to resign because you, you got to pay back all the expenses. Oh, right. Because yeah. as a cadet, you're not just a student. You're a government scholar and you're an employee. For sure. Of the government. You are. You're, you owe servitude to the country. Yeah, you're you're active duty yeah. military, right. basically. In some ways, you're like a third lieutenant, you know. Right. Then you graduate to be a, and a second. second lieutenant. But, exactly. But yeah, dude, you get how was benefits everywhere? Right, right, right. How was that first year? This plebe oh year. Oh my god! I yeah. know. It was. Crazy. What are some of your memories from there? Um, I don't want you going hazing. into shock and uh, PTSD oh, right now. I mean, oh but. yeah, hazing. I mean, if there's such thing as a PTSD for us, that would be off the ear. Really? Yeah. I mean, hazing galore, man. I mean, for an entire year, you cannot walk. You have to be double timing. Inside covered areas, you trot. But outside, you double time. Can you explain double time for people who don't so know? So double timing is basically running with your knees. Like perpendicular, perpendic basically. Yeah, basically perpendicular to your hips. Wow. So you have to you have to basically run like double that. Double time everywhere. Everywhere. As long as you're outside, you have to double time. Every time you see an upper class, you stop, you turn to the side, let the upper class pass. You salute if you're outside and you say, sir, cadet, blah, 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 sir. Good morning, sir. Good afternoon, sir. Blah, blah, blah. Good afternoon, sir. Cadet, blah, 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 sir. You know, like that. Wow. And, and then uh, double yeah. time off. And then double time off. Unless the upper class decides to- To haze uh, you. To haze you, you know, and then he'll do <sighs> things like, he'll, he'll do things like- <laughs> Whatever you know, he wants, basically. Yeah, like, What's the name of my dog? What's you know? the name of my dog? Yeah, things like that. You and know? if you don't get it. If you don't get it, you report to his room. And when you report to his room- all sorts of nasty things. You can get electrocuted. You can get your fingers broken. No way. Uh, yeah. I had all my fingers in my left hand broken because I couldn't salute properly with my right hand. So every time I salute and it's wrong, wrong angle, whatever, they break one finger. Are and you then serious? the second time, they break the other finger. They basically put like a bullet between two fingers and then crack. And then squeeze another it finger, like a nutcracker. Like a nutcracker. But yeah, it doesn't crack the bullet. Oh, it cracks your, your knuckles. fingers. Yeah, yeah, yeah will yeah. crack. Yeah. So yeah, all five of your fingers. Yeah, and then I remember the thing called shoe brush. You know what shoe brush is with the, the, wo the wooden handle, right? Right. So they take that wooden handle. They make you purse your fingers together. Okay. Like you know, like a like an Italian. Forget about it. Yeah, like a forget about it. Like they like an Italian thing. You bring both your fingers right, right. together. You hold it up, okay. and they'll slam. The shoe brush handle the on top of your, or the tip of your fingers until blood starts squirting out of your fingernails. No yeah. way. And that happened to you too. Oh yeah. All the time. And oh. Uh, oh, just so many things. And of course, there's just the typical like punching you in the body everywhere. They know where to hit you where it doesn't break your ribs or it, it doesn't leave a mark kind of right, thing. Right. But know? it just hurts yeah. forever. So what they will do is they'll, they'll do this with it. They'll, they'll stick, stick out, their middle finger they'll out. stick their middle knuckle Okay. Out. Yeah. And they'll hit you in the solar plexus with it. Oh, as hard as they can. That's excruciating. Your breath. Oh can't my breathe. God. It's like your lungs are going to explode, you know? Right. And you're just wheezing for, you know, there's just things like those. And then of course, <laughs> you know, it's not humanly possible to do a thousand push-ups at one time, but for some reason I did it. Are you serious? For fear of, <laughs> for fear of those <laughs> yeah, other things. Yeah, for those other things. A yeah, thousand push-ups. A thousand push-ups in one, you know, in one night. <laughs> yeah. And then no there's way. thing. There's a thing that they call bridging. You know, there's double decker beds. Okay. The, we call it bunk like beds, a bunk right? Bed, uh, yeah. Bunk bed. So a bridging is when you stand 
and you, you bridge your body under the top bunk. Okay. Like facing up to the ceiling, Ooh. holding your balls basically. And you're just, right. You're just bridging like that. Oh, it's like an inverted plank almost. Like an inverted plank, but you're standing, you're standing at the side of the bed and then you're inserting your, your body underneath between the two beds. Oh, you know, I and, see. And then your, your body's arced. Arch back, back. back. Arch back. And you have to hold that position without and falling. And you have to ball. Yeah. I it's mean, like as if you're laying down on the bed, but you can't keep going. Yeah. Yeah. Basically what happens, they make us do that at night when the upperclassmen are sleeping. So the upperclassmen in the bottom bunk, if you do fall down and you wake them up, you're a sh- oh, ton of trouble, man. Dude, how oh. do you hold that position though? That's insane. Willpower. <laughs> Willpower. <laughs> and I'm telling you, I did. I remember bridging for two straight hours. No Yeah, way. I remember that. You know, and we, we basically bridge until it's time for inspections because every night, around the clock, every several hours, the guards will inspect each room. Okay. And the cadets have an honor code. So you cannot lie, cheat, or steal, right? right. So when the, the guards come in and they say, all right, sir, and you say, all right, and there's a plebe in your room, oh. bridging or getting haste, you've just lied. Oh, right? so I you, see. you can get, yeah, yeah. It's a violation of the honor code and you can get reported and you can get oh, wow. kicked out. So you have to say, uh, I'm suicide. hazing someone right now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah if someone's there. So <laughs> what, the, what the upperclassmen will do is they'll time it in between those periods. So you'll report to them. They'll haze you as long as they can until right before inspection. Right. And then they'll send you back to your room. And then that's your, that's your rest. And if they decide that they're sleepy, they want to go back to sleep, then that just saves you because then you, you don't have to go back. Right. But if the upperclassman feels like he's cramming on exams, whatever, he just needs some, he needs some entertainment, you're going back to his room after inspection. Then you go back and you stay <laughs> there until the next inspection, you know? Dude. So yeah, it, it's crazy. So yeah. out of all of those, what is the worst memory for you? Electrocution. No. Yeah, yeah. Sticking my own finger, you know, in a lamp where they take off the bulb and they tell you to put your finger in there. And you just stick your finger in there. You have to. It's an order, right? So you just have to do it. And And how did that feel? Oh my God. I don't even remember. Oh, I remember, but I don't want to remember. Right. Yeah. It's that bad. It's terrifying. It's not even just the, once you get electrocuted, that's it, right? Mm, I mean, it's true. It it hurts. But it's before that, when you're voluntarily doing it. You're being made to do it and you're doing it, you know? <laughs> you have an option, right? You basically say no and you run away or whatever, or you just do it and just, you know, swallow your, you know? It's like a Yakuza, right? It's about to cut yeah. off his little pinky. Pretty He's much. just like, yeah. it's yeah. coming. You know what? It's coming. That's the most terrifying part. <sighs> but the act itself, once you're hurt, you get zapped. And it's a bad feeling, but you went through it. Really. That anticipation. It, you cross the bridge. Yeah. But before you cross the bridge. That's is the, the scariest that's part. That's the scariest part. I look at it this way, just like anything else in life, just like any other bad or whatever challenges in life. I look at it this way. What good will come out of this? Okay. Right? And yeah, the act itself, the fear, being terrified, all this stuff, it's all bad. But there's got to be some good. And you know what good comes out of this? I'm never afraid of challenges ever again. <laughs> yeah. 100%. If I can, If I can voluntarily stick my finger into in, a socket, into a socket, into a live socket and allow myself to be electrocuted, I can do any freaking thing in the right. world. You know, I am not afraid of anything. It built my strength, my self-strength to a point where I fear nothing. I fear many things, but fear nothing, kind of right. so to speak. You right, know, right, so. right, 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 right. Of course, because yeah. it's natural to have that yeah. fear, but exactly. you also can face it. 
Yeah, yeah. I can I can confront fear. Yeah, yeah, yeah for exactly. Sure. Yeah. And, as a fighter. Yeah. And I feel like as bad as it was, mm. as terrible, terrifying, and as painful and as bad as it was my first year in the academy as a plebe, it made a lasting impact in my mm. life. I think that year. Mm. That is that one year in my life that made me who I am now. You know, I'm and sure. um, yeah, and uh, all the graduates and all the alumni of the academy, anyone who went through plebeer is a brother. We shared the same thing. You know, all these guys, they will know what I'm talking about. They could be normal looking guys you meet in the streets, all shapes and forms. But but if you guys know, that's if you know, if you're a PMA went, grad, yeah, that's the defining moment. And having been through it and surviving it, we're brothers in arms forever. Oh man. So what about the uh, flat foot? How were you able to train yourself for one year to do that? So for a year, because I was doing Muay Thai and Muay Thai, when you throw these round kicks, right. you have to lift your, your heel toe. Off, yeah, yeah exactly. You have to lift your heel off the ground and basically pivot off your toes. Exactly. So you have to arch. Right. You know, so using Muay Thai, I start practicing to arch my feet as I lift up and kick. And I wasn't even practicing the kick. I was practicing the arching of my feet. That's interesting. And then once I became comfortable at arching my feet, I would walk around with arching my feet. And the way I would know that I'm arching my feet is I put powder. My mom would get pissed off at home because there would be powder, powder, powder all, all over the floor, all over the hardwood floor. Because I'd, you know, I put powder in my feet, my entire feet, and I would walk around the house and arch my feet doing that. Right. So until I can see that there's only two powder right. marks, you know, per, per footprint. That's then that means, you know, that I have an arch. So I started like arching my, my feet on demand. You know, okay. so that I can, and then I knew when I was doing it right. So when I took the medical test, you it was time it to do, yeah, I just basically arched my feet because they made a step on, you know, kind of like a memory foam kind of thing, Ooh, you know? Ooh, interesting. Yeah. So you stand on it for like several seconds so you can't cheat, but I can hold that arch for like hours. Right, 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 right. Because right. I've been doing that. So and I would just stand there. Like, you just stand there, yeah, arch da, 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 it, and then whatever. throw a roundhouse. And yeah, then knock yeah exactly. Yeah, I could sing songs. I can do squats. I can do whatever, right? <laughs> but I just had to let you through. I can hold it arch. through that kick. <laughs> I can hold the arch forever. Yeah. So I made it. <laughs> so you got through that first year. Did you go into your second year? Yeah. Oh, yeah, you did. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So did life get that much easier after going through that plebe year? Yeah, yeah. Then it was oh, yeah. our turn to start tasing people. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. How much did you pay it back? Not much. All my underclassmen can tell you that I'm probably one of the most nicest upperclassmen ever. Oh, really? Like I would only haze cadets, you know, as a punishment, only just to show that I'm hazing them, so the other upperclassmen will oh, think I'm, I'm weak. I see you know? peer pressure. Yeah, peer pressure. So I'd maybe punch the guy in the stomach. Right. But not super hard. Ooh, interesting. You know? Okay. I'd yell at them. I'd make them do push-ups, whatever. Just whatever is expected of me as an upperclassman. But I never relished the process of making another human being suffer. I figure, yeah, it's, you know, it's a process. It's something that's going to happen anyway. Let someone else do it. Right, right, not right, my, right. Not right, my right. thing, you know, so, yeah. That's from your younger years of regretting, you know, being a bully on the streets, right? Yeah, of yeah. street yeah. fights. I so. just don't, yeah. I, I have such a soft heart, as badass as I may seem to a lot of people. Right. I'm really pretty soft hearted. You know? I know. Sarah always says she's yeah. your bodyguard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. She's more vicious than I am. Exactly. Yeah. I heard about her stories. Oh, yeah. Over dinner the other night about her beating <laughs> up everyone in the Philippines film industry. <laughs> we'll save that story for later, but yeah. <laughs> Exactly. So who are some of your classmates, if you can say? Oh, I can say, I can say okay. who they are. I mean, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. a lot of them are retired now. Okay. Um, 
like uh, some of the more famous ones is this guy named nicknamed Bato. Bato. Uh, Ro- okay. Ronald De La Rosa. He was a former chief of police under Duterte, and you know, Ooh. and it was badass. And um, it <laughs> was very, crazy. Was very that's good. a crazy position, man. Yeah, Filipinos will exactly know who it is when you say Bato. Plus, he's a senator right now. Oh, um, yeah, that is a Filipino way. Yeah, yeah, my, that's like Pacquiao too, right? What is he? Is he a senator now? I don't think so right now. Okay, okay. Yeah, I think he lost the last elections. But, I see. Um, Pacquiao, his whole thing was just to help people. You know, he's not as, I mean, he has so much money. He doesn't, you know, going to politics doesn't really help him make more money. <laughs> Helps other people around him make more money, but not him. He's really out to just help people. Mm. Um, but anyway, yeah, so. Uh, Bato. Yeah, Bato, another former chief of police. After Bato was uh, Oscar Albayalde, who was also running for Senate this coming elections or Congress. He was my squad mate for a long time and uh, the chief of staff of the armed forces of the Philippines. <laughs> wow. The flag officer of command of the Navy, uh, Joby Bacordo, also my friend all the way from college, really good friend of mine. The regional commander of the Army, Bob Ankan, all those guys, you know, the, uh, there's so many to mention. There's oh, just so that's many crazy. to mention. Yeah. So they like control the Philippines. At one point, yes. At one point. Now they're all retired happily. We, enjoying we, some guava enjoying on the some plantation. Guava. Yeah, yeah. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> a nice re- peaceful re- life. Reaping the fruits of their labor. That's right. That's right. So that's crazy, right? I mentioned that in the intro where you're basically on this trajectory. If you had continued, you would be alongside a lot of these names that we're mentioning here. That was your trajectory. That was your dream. That was your path. Yeah. I'd either be a general or retired general or I would be dead from combat. So you had a lot of classmates who died in combat as well. A lot. Oh, oh, really? Yeah. Okay. My class especially, class 87, had one of the most number of, of casualties. Just because that was one of the most violent times, Philippine, you know, modern Philippine history. Oh, man. So you, even as like this teenager, you know, in the beginning of PMA, you saw actual combat. Yeah, yeah, I did. I um, did a scout ranger training. And uh, as part of our graduation, we have what they call a test mission. So we have to go on a combat mission and we can't graduate until we actually see combat. Really? Yeah. yeah. So I did see combat. Wow. Crazy. That was crazy. Was this like in the South? Um, Yeah. Mine was in the North against communist rebels. Really? Yeah. That's crazy. So yeah, it was, it was pretty intense. Terrifying in its own way. I'm sure. Because now you got live bullets whizzing all over the place. You can hear them. You can sometimes see them like, you know, cut twigs and, and leaves and branches around you when they're like basically raining all over you. And then, uh, then you start seeing people getting hit. You start getting terrified that I'm actually not, I'm more afraid of getting maimed and disabled, handicapped because of that, losing a leg or an right. arm or something, rather than dying. Yeah. Just finish it quick. Just finish it quick. Right. Man. If I get hit, just hit me in the head or something. Right. right but you don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to be I, like pulling yeah. your leg. Yeah, I don't want to uh, walk into a mine or something like that and then, you know, have no legs left or something like that. That was my biggest fear in the military. One of the reasons also why I re-examined my, you know, my dream, my my path. Right. Yeah. And um, I was able to do that when I moved to the States. I could have re-enlisted in the U.S. military or something Uh, like that. Right. 
I thought about it and I said to myself, you know, no, I'm now. I've left know, that life behind. I've left that life behind, you know, not so willingly in the beginning, but now that I get to sit and really think about what I went through, this is not something I want to go through at my age. Right. I'm young. I'm in my very early 20s and I'm living in California. There's a lot of hot girls. Yeah. And sunny uh, Southern California. The surf is good. Yeah, I mean, there's just like life suddenly opened up to me. So when I moved to the States, life just completely opened up to me. Suddenly, I didn't have these blinders. Uh, I just want military, right. military, military. My childhood, elementary to high school, my mind was all- It's all martial. Uh, all martial, yeah. right? I mean, I didn't see anything colorful except for camouflage. Right, you know? so interesting. That was the most colors I can imagine at that time. Yeah, you mentioned that in the beginning, it was not willingly. So how did this happen? Well, you know, my parents wanted to immigrate to the U.S. and I had a chance to do it. I have to think that if I stayed behind and I ended up, you know, serving in the military, I would have to serve for at least eight years. Right. Philippine military. And really, my youth would be pretty much gone. Gone. That's it. That's it for the rest of my life. Or I have this chance to move to the States become an American citizen. And of course, back then, especially you think about stage, you think about what you watch in movies and all these cool things happening in the U.S. and everybody wants to be an American. Right. You know, it's especially cool. in California. It's not a bad yeah, place. It's not a bad place. I mean, <laughs> you see all these things and it's like, wow, there's so much life to experience, especially when you live in the States in the first world country where everything's possible. Mm. You know, there's golden streets, basically. Yeah. Know? And um, I decided to give myself a chance for that. It's once in a lifetime. I could not do it again. If, even if I tried, I just thought, you know, and the country, the Philippines was going through very tumultuous times at that time. You exactly. Know? You didn't know who was good or bad. You know, the military was not considered totally good at that point. Right, you know? right, right, right. So you didn't even know what you were fighting for anymore. And I had this opportunity, you know, to change the course change of your the life course of my life and i thought you know i moved to the state i'll join the army right i joined the u.s army worst then case I, scenario then I just i'll have uh, better stuff you know right, better right. weapons better training better everything right so i'm like whatever you know it's it's all american is better you right know, that kind it's of all thing. good that was the mentality i had back then so yeah so that's what prompted me knowing that i can still join the military when i go to the states okay to make I, that decision yeah by the time i got to the states i realized i didn't want to be in the military anymore Oh, wow. Yeah. And then I saw what's out there and I dug deep and I said, who am I really? What do I really want to be? Right. You lost all of your meaning up until that point. Yeah. I right? lost my meaning because after that point, I was just a military guy. I was a, a soldier, really, you know, and that's all I saw myself as, as a soldier. Right. A soldier and an officer. And um, now I'm like sitting there going, Wow, I look around me, you know, living in San Diego, I'm like, wow, and everything is about movies, obviously, because Southern California is it's Hollywood, you know, biggest industry there. I met a lot of friends who were working in the film industry, you know, and I said to myself, you know, ever since I was a kid, I was totally into martial arts and movies. It's always been my dream, even before the military. Exactly, with you your know. father in those double yeah, kung yeah, fu. Yeah, double kung fu features and stuff. Exactly. So, um, I thought, I want to be an actor. I want to be an artist. But then I looked around like, but no, no, no one's going to take me seriously. They got to look at me like, you know, you short brown guy, you know, like, you know, who's going to make you an actor? Who's going to make you a star? I mean, no, don't even, you're too ambitious kind of thing. You know? And, um, and the uh, Filipino Tom Cruise. Yeah, in right. The house. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm not that short, but, you know, I'm, def I'm definitely not. I'm definitely not. Yeah. Apologies, Tom yeah, Cruise. Apologies, Tom Cruise. But I'm the same height as Tom Cruise. So, yeah. So, but, you know, and I'm actually taller than Bruce Lee. So, hey, I oh, still there you could, go. right? There you go. Yeah. 
it was just one of those things where it's already too much for me to go into film because it's like it's not being conservative or conventional not a doctor not a lawyer not an accountant you know film is too lofty of a goal right for, for most people and then to even say that i want to be an actor you know star whatever even loftier right so i settled with filmmaking that was the uh, compromise yeah but at least i get to be in the creative world in right creative space you know i can be a director uh, and in my mind you know i can always star in my own movies right kind of thing, exactly you know, right? so quite a dream yeah that yeah. actually ended up becoming true yeah exactly <laughs> so that was my start and then i ended up working after film school i worked for stu Siegel productions which you uh completely <laughs> dashed my 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 uh my memory of stu Siegel productions because when i first started working for stu Siegel back in 1991 it was a brand new movie studio the only one of its kind in san diego you don't have to go to la just to be in hollywood you know, it was a Hollywood of San Diego. And so uh, you thought you're working for this, you know, legit. It was the greatest studio in San Diego. Yeah. Yeah. And it was legit, man. It was I, legit. We, I worked on Renegade uh, exactly. with Lorenzo Lamas. I worked on Silk Stockings. And then I eventually worked on a martial arts series with Russell Wong called Vanishing Sun. Right. First time I also got to work on camera as well. But what you are referring to is last time you came... I told you, me doing a little bit of due diligence into Stu Seagal Productions. I read that Seagal began his career in 1970, directing sexploitation movies and hardcore pornography, including the infamous Insatiable, starring Marilyn Chambers. Eventually, he got work in television, and then he opened his San Diego TV studio to film the TV show Silk Stockings in 1991. Right. So right. you were working for an ex-porn king. I was. He was a, a legendary porn producer, apparently. Yeah. But you did not know that going there. I did not know and that until, know until that like about three week. days ago. <laughs> I know, three days ago. I told you, I broke the news. My God. <laughs> I'm devastated. I know. No, I'm not. I'm no, actually. that's actually pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's pretty cool. Actually. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Wow. So you're working for this studio out of college or this was, okay, this wasn't like an internship. This was kind of like our first job after graduating. I, I interned in some of their productions, you know, like in the early 89 and 90. This okay. Was an intern, yeah. But uh, started really working in 1991. Okay. So that's your first kind of taste of real working in film. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Film crew and everything. At the time, everything was still film. Uh, second AC, I think. And I was like the guy in charge of loading film and the cameras, taking them out, taking them to processing at the end of the day. Things like those. Okay. Yeah. But then there is also, as I mentioned, career in IT. Well, when the series Vanishing Sun didn't get you know picked up picked for a second up. season, okay. I was left looking for more work. I moved to LA, jumped around, worked for Occidental Studios, worked for a bunch of different places. And found myself working for a film company that also makes computer games. So we shoot movies for interactive computer games back then. Mm. This is back when computers were like 486. Right. And, you know, and we were still burning discs. Exactly. You know, CDs and yeah. all that stuff. So I worked for a company called Cyber Dreams and I work in the film group. And then after we finish filming something, the software team will put it together into an interactive game. On a CD. 
on CDs, okay. yeah, multiple CDs. Oh, wow. I was very interested in the game itself. And the manager or the director of engineering at that time, John Fair, we became friends. And also because of martial arts, he knew I was into martial arts. And he was really into martial arts. So that kind of bonded us. And then he invited me to work for his testing team, quality assurance team. Okay. So I worked in QA, just testing these games, you know, because I knew the paths and all that stuff, you know, so I would test, but I would do it manually. But the rest of this team, they would automate the testing. They would basically use programming stuff like Visual Basic and stuff like that to automate the desktop, you know, and then they'd step off, have a cup of coffee. Mm. And by the time they're done, the, it's, tested. The, it's been tested like 800 times or right, something. Right, know, that's right. how fast, right? So you were doing this one by one, one by one, step by know. step. It would take me like three days to finish the game. <laughs> Just on one path. Right, you know, right. Whereas it would take them like 10 seconds to finish one path. Right. So then I told John I was interested in that. He said, take some uh, programming classes. So he showed me how it's done, you know, how to set up a programming environment in my um, computer. You know, and then the rest was history. I, I fell in love with that because it was a creative process to me. Mm. And it's like writing stories and scripts and stuff like that. And I ended up like, while I was working for Cyber Dreams, I would take classes at night, night classes at uh, UCSD Extension. Mm. And I took programming classes, C, C++, eventually Java. Within that year, I got certified in C, C++. Uh, Python. You know, uh, not Python, okay. C, C++, Java, SQL. C, okay, you know, um, yeah, like PHP. Da um, database programming. Yes. Uh, stuff like that. And then... Um, when Cyber Dreams closed their doors, they ran out of investment money. Technology was a little bit too early for hardware and you know, computers were coming out at that time. So they ran out of money, ran, ran out of funding, closed the doors. I literally, with my experience and my training and my certifications, I literally walked across the street. <laughs> and within, in less than an hour, I had another job. No a way. better paying job as a database programmer. Where was this? What city? In Calabasas. In Calabasas. Yeah, Cal nice. Yeah, there's like a technology park there, LA County. I worked for that company for not too long, probably three or four months. It gave me enough confidence to go work for another tech company. Oh. So I wanted to go back to San Diego, where I still had a lot of family, a lot of friends. I went back to San Diego and I worked for a company called Pixis Corporation. They created this drug dispensing robots for, for hospitals. Mm. You know, so to, it keeps doctors and nurses honest, you know, because they can't just take any but, exactly you know, yeah. some oxycodone but, uh, yeah exactly <laughs> yeah so it's all robots that go around in the different floors and know, dispense yeah, and, and dispense Ooh, uh, medication to the, to the patients okay and they're all timed and all that stuff so i worked for a company that did that made these robots as a programmer basically huh. you know? so i did really well i worked for almost one year but it was great because i picked this place i picked this company not because of their technology but because they're right in torrey pines near torrey pines beach exactly so then i can That's go my surf. territory you see yeah, baby. yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, so it's right by um the the glider park, right exactly. by Black's Beach is down there. I had oh, a man. lot of friends that went to UCSD and they were in the surf club at UCSD. And you guys have your own path, exactly. and your own gate that takes you all the way to Black's Beach, which is one of the best surf spots, right? right? And no one else can go through there. Mm -hmm. But because I was friends with them, after work, I'd go meet them, grab my board, run down, meet them down the path. And we'd go through and the gate know, because they had, they had the key to go in Oh man! and we'd go surf at Blacks every day. So that was really my prerequisite for finding a job back then. <laughs> it has to be near the beach. Good surfing. Yeah, exactly. So good I coffee, can, can good go surfing. Surf. That's it. So in the morning, I surf before I go to work. After work, I'd go surf for a little bit. Then after surfing, I'd go to the gym, do some kickboxing, whatever. Right. Yeah. And 
go home. That was my life during that time. And then um, my experience got more and more and more. I became much, much better at programming and it emboldened me to go for the for the big time, you know, Silicon Valley. Up north. Yeah, where else would you go, right? Yep. Everyone was making millions in Silicon Valley. Their companies would go public within a year. Exactly. You know? And um, some companies would just get funded because they have a nice concept. Because they have a website and they get funded tons and tons of money, millions and millions right. of dollars. Like Pre-MVP. Yeah. So you like- have you have these guys, you have these engineers straight out of college who would get paid eighty thousand to a hundred thousand a year and have sign-in bonuses, you know, of like a hundred thousand dollars or something like that. You know, I remember like I was offered a job by Visa and my sign-on bonus was a BMW Roadster. That was your signing bonus. That was, it was a Z series. Okay. A Z. Yeah. A BMW, BMW Z, Z series. Yeah. So that was my sign-on bonus. They offered me that, but I turned it down. It wasn't good enough. No, because they're not a startup company. They're it's already too, public. Right. No stocks. Too conservative. No stock options. Exactly. People were making millions of stock options when their right. company goes public. So I opted, I accepted a job with Brio Technology, which was a business intelligence company, a data mining stuff like that, you know. They were at the time still a startup company. Within a year of working for them, the company went public. Oh, nice. And my stock options, you know, and suddenly I was a millionaire. Oh, wow. Really? Uh, literally. Like, yeah. yeah. Oh, Paid off all my student loans, bought a house in San Francisco, bought a boat with a friend of mine. <laughs> I mean, that kind of thing. You know, I had, you know, I was driving BMWs. I had two, not one, but two, because, oh, just because I can. I was living the life. What kind of you BMWs? Know, both was a three series. I had a 324 and I had an M3. Oh, you had an M3 too. Yeah. yeah. <sighs> Nice. And then eventually I traded the M3 for an M5. So it just yeah. kept getting good. Just kept that was just a start. Yeah, that was just a start, you know. <laughs> so those were good times in terms of money. I hated my jobs. You hated the jobs I hated though. every moment. Ever since I started working in the software industry. That's interesting, right? Because initially it was basically to make money. It was always to make money. Right. Always. Money was always blinding me because there was so much money. Even just the salaries were crazy. This is in the 90s, late 90s and early 2000s. I was making like, at the height of my software career, I was making 180000 a year. Just in salary. In salary, yeah. Not including stock not including, options. Not including stock options, bonuses, whatever. Right, you know? right, right, right. I mean, I worked for some big companies too, and it was just so much money that it kind of blinded me. I look back now and I just did not like the job. Hmm. You know, I pretended that I liked the job because of good money. And the surfing kept you happy. The surfing kept me happy. The martial arts kept me happy. Right, 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 right. Good this, food. Yeah, good the food. The nice cars. Yeah, yeah. The ladies. I, I even tried to like create my own film production company. Tried to uh, shoot some movies, but I couldn't finish it because the job is so challenging, you know, so. Right, so demanding. Yeah, so demanding. Just wasn't um, enough time to do anything else. I mean, we were working basically seven days a week, every single time. You're always chasing deadlines, release deadlines, you know, updates, patches, whatever, you know, version releases. Things like that. It was very dynamic and very stressful oh. at the same time. I love the benefits I got out of it. The money, the benefits, the offices, the sort of the prestige. It was but great. you still felt empty. I felt empty. Yeah. You only get so far in mm. life, you know, before you start realizing, oh shit, I'm 40 years old and I'm still doing something I don't like. And I've made all the money I want, but it hasn't really made me as happy as I want to be. I feel so, I feel empty. I feel like there's something missing. How am I going to live the rest of my life feeling that there's a hole? Mm. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah. So then I decided eventually that enough is enough. During this time, 
because this will kind of lead to another country as well. But I want to get to, because I mentioned it also in the beginning, that you actually have patents. You have a couple patents. And I think this is related to some of the work you were doing there. Can you explain about that? Yeah. So I was working for this company, a startup company called Bitphone. Probably in my corporate career, the best company I've ever worked for in my entire life. This is also another reason why I never want to go back and work in the corporate world because I don't think you can beat the experience at Bitphone. Okay. Number one, the CEO is my idol, is uh, my friend. My big brother just inspired me, inspires me up to this day. Oh. Right? So the people that worked around me, my team, my God, they're just amazing. So this is Bitphone with an F. Yeah, with an F. Yeah. Uh, Bitphone with an F. We were very ambitious. When we first started, I took a huge cut in pay. My CEO, Gene Wong, didn't even know how big of a cut I, I took until I told him like years and years and years later. I mean, I basically settled for half of what I was making. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, I was making before I took that job only because I wanted to be part of this mobile technology thing, which I felt at that time was is the new wave of the future. It was in 2000, right? Year 2000. That turns out to be true. Yeah, yeah. Mobile first. So I wanted to go into the mobile industry, telecom, mobile phones, things like those. And Bitphone was making some really huge advances into that, you know. Uh. And I knew that everything's going to become smart eventually. Smartphones, you know, you name it. You know, they weren't even called smartphones at the time. Right. They weren't they were that called, smart. They were called Blackberries. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Or Nokia. Yeah. Or Nokia. Yeah. <laughs> yep. And um, so to make a long story short, because the company went through several iterations of technologies, but at the end of the day, we were making technology that would enable smartphones to update themselves, to update the firmware over the air mm. without having to take it to a service center and then flash the firmware to get right, upgraded. Right, like manually. Manually, because that's how it was done back then. Exactly. Because back then there was no technology that would allow you to download an update package for your firmware. Like wirelessly. Like wirelessly. Exactly. Through the telecom and through the GPRS network back then, GSM and GPRS, you know, to bring down a package so big that would update your firmware. Why? Because unlike software, firmware doesn't just update over itself. The process of updating a firmware is first you have to erase the entire firmware. Mm. We're talking bank after bank, every bank of firmware. You have a brick in your hand. If it doesn't get reflashed, you have a brick in your hand. Yeah, you're going to brick your phone. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Unusable. So, unusable, yeah. So you have to erase the entire firmware. Then you have to install the new version. Right. The new version. And then you have to put everything else back in. That's how it's done. And it was always done like wired, you know, all that stuff. Take it into a service center, let yeah. them do it. Yeah. Make sure to have some backup power so that yeah. the phone doesn't die out. It was exactly. a laborious process yeah. to update a phone. In order to reflash a phone over the air, to update the firmware over the air, you have to download the update package for the firmware wirelessly, which means, you know, a firmware would be what? Like 500 megabytes, which yeah. is huge at the time, right? Yeah. So imagine trying to download 500 megabytes right, from the, over the from air from, space. From, from, from GSM yeah. networks. Impossible, right? <laughs> right? So in order to do that, your update package is to be compressed okay. into really tiny versions, like 10 bytes, for example, mm. you know. Well, that's be, impossible to compress that much. That's uh, impossible to compress that much. Right. And, and there's a lot of companies that will start to enter this uh, update race. The moment we started going into it, everyone else started doing it. But because we were a little slightly ahead, we have made all the mistakes that they were still making. Interesting. Right? And I realized at the time I was vice president of engineering, I realized that, you know, just normal compression is not going to work. We have to come up with some kind of algorithm that will 
create, you know, a smart update. So we were thinking, me and my team were like, why not? Instead of compressing the file. Uh-huh. The know, firmware file. A, a firmware file. Why don't we just install an agent in the phone and that agent is intelligent enough to update the firmware by itself. Right. It's an embedded know? system. And how does it do that? Is if the server, the telecom server, sends a set of instructions. Think of it as like a shopping list. Yeah. Blueprint. You know? Yeah. A shopping list of what banks to update. So then basically when you go to sleep at night, your phone turns off. And when you turn it back on, the first thing you do is ping the server. So our agent sits at the bootloader. So when, when it reboots, our agent sits there and then talks to the telecom server and says, do you have an update for me? And when the telecom server says, yep, yeah, we sure do. So this agent will prevent the phone from booting up. It will take the package, the set of instructions, which is tiny, which is about 10 bytes or a little bit more. It'll take the set of instructions and then proceed to update the firmware bank right. by bank. Bank by bank. Bank by bank while the phone is still sleeping. That's a smart way. Rather than compressing, you exactly. did it in this yeah, way, yeah. step by step. Yeah. So then right. when it's done, it reboots the phone. The phone's got a brand new firmware. No you know? way. Yeah. So that kind of thing. So anyway, that technology we are able to patent. So you so patent. I have I have two software patents. And then um, <laughs> we were going to roll it out to the highest bidders, obviously, right? Because that's what we do. Yeah, of course. Uh, we, we saw our technology and HP was interested in it. We were going to deploy it to China was also starting their 3G infrastructure at that time. And um, I actually became, because of this whole process, I became sort of an expert in 3G and um, ended up moving to China for my company to integrate our technology with China Telecom. Wow. Uh, yeah, so I did that and... Um, I was uh, one of the few guys in China at the time that really knew 3G. China was building their own 3G, but they needed like, of course, infrastructure knowledge and stuff. What year was this? 2005. Okay. 2005. Okay. Yeah. I actually even became a professor of computer science at Tianjin University. While you were there? Well, I was there. I was oh, teaching man. 3G technology. At Tianjin University. Tianjin University. And then like revolutionizing their mobile system, their mobile network. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah so, that's crazy. Yeah. I was in China, based in Beijing, working for my company at that time. And I just was getting really disillusioned already. Oh. I mean, we've been through a lot of challenges, internal challenges in the company as well. And personal. It just was just getting worse and worse. I was just a walking time bomb to myself. Oh. You know, and uh, I just turned 40 and you know, I was just like kind of a midlife crisis. Yeah. You know, thinking to myself, you know, I'm not getting any younger, but I haven't really achieved my dreams. Right. You know, yeah, sure. I'm making money. But this kind of railroaded my dreams, kind of came in between me trying to achieve my dreams. I make a lot of money, but life is still the same. I haven't really gotten anywhere in my book. I'm not trying to live by anyone else's book, but my book. I really tried to live by everybody else's expectations. Didn't work for me. Mm -hmm. So if people are trying to say something like, well, you know, money this, money that. I'm like, screw you. You keep your money. I'm, you know, I'm keeping my life, mm -hmm. my sanity. I'm doing what- My do soul. Yeah, my soul. I'm mm -hmm. doing what's best for me. Money will come later. Right. It did, you know, but while I was in China, I realized that I can live very cheaply and still have a good quality of life. Yes. It was not like the States where everywhere you turn, you walk out of your house, you're dumping money right away. And cost of living was low. Even living in Beijing, in a big city like Beijing, the food was amazing. Oh, yes, yeah. definitely. Yeah, there was just so much. It was like the Wild West yes. in the early 2000s. You know, right. Because everything was new. And China, the government at the time, was very open to Western ideas, concepts, commerce, things like those. If you have an idea, 
go someone, with it. Go with it because someone will fund it. Right. You know, that kind exactly. of thing. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. So I went through several things. Basically, at the end of the day, I wanted to go back and film. Oh. So while I was in China, I started making the process of getting back in film. I bought some film equipment. I aligned myself with some independent filmmakers trying to do stuff, you know, but kind of made me realize I have to make a choice. You know, if I continue working full time for software, it's always going to be the same. I'm just doing this little bit here, a little bit there. It's not going to go anywhere. It'll be like a hobby, you know, and I don't want to make it a hobby. I want to make it my life. So I made the decision to retire from software. Okay. So I literally just basically stopped and told my boss, I'm going to be a- You're going to chase my uh, dreams. Chase my dreams. <laughs> and the lowest hanging fruit for me at that time, it always has been all my life as Muay Thai. Right. It's martial arts. Every time I'm at a loss of what to do with my life, I have no job or whatever, I can always teach Muay Thai. Right. Go back to 10-year-old Vince. 10-year-old that's been competing, that has so much experience, so many fights, has won championships. Yeah. And, you know, and I have I have clout when it comes to Muay Thai. Right. You know, because I have the knowledge. Knowledge is gold. Mm -hmm. And so I started off to support myself out of software. You know, when I got out of software in Beijing, I started teaching. Muay Thai, hoping that I can pursue a career or business in film. Mm -hmm. Back in 2005, 2006, actually in 2006, I even started a company that could have been YouTube now, uh, but of course it failed. Watch because, out, Steve uh, Chen. <laughs> well, it <laughs> failed because I didn't have any money, uh, but I had a concept and I had some prototypes going on for streaming movies oh, for, for really? mobile, mobile phones. Interesting. Because I understood the mobile phone infrastructure. I also understood the 3G infrastructure and I knew we can stream movies. Right. It wasn't fast enough to download the entire movie, but streaming bit by bit, you know, okay, caching the stream and then playing it in the phone seamlessly. That was a general idea, kind of like what YouTube does in phones now and everyone else. I had prototypes for that back in 2006. I was trying to shop it around, but you know, I even went to the Philippines to line up with filmmakers there to shoot movies that I can use to, you know, to, to stream on to that stream on platform. The, on, on this platform, okay. so, which I was demoing everywhere. But I ran out of money doing that. And then at the same time, teaching martial arts pretty much became a full-time job because mm. here I was suddenly a foreigner, you know, who didn't know anything about Chinese martial arts, didn't even speak Chinese. And I'm teaching a martial art in China. <laughs> from a different martial, country. <laughs> yeah, from different country and in English, right. obviously, right? So suddenly, but because Muay Thai was so powerful, such a powerful martial art. It's a martial art that beats everyone, right? So with Ong Bak coming out at the time, the movie, everyone's True. interested in it. And of course, there's been challenges, you know. Um, oh. back, this is before MMA. There's been challenges like martial art versus martial art. And then- Yeah, all this, this is like from Ip Man. Like, yeah, exactly. Like Kung Fu versus Muay Thai and, you know, Taekwondo versus Muay Thai, Karate versus Muay Thai. Muay Thai was always predominantly the winner, right? The masters like, would come and challenge yeah. the new person coming in. It was very interesting to the Chinese. Muay Thai was very interesting to the Chinese. So when I opened up my Muay Thai school, I had two people would come into my school. People who would want to learn Muay Thai or- People who want to challenge you. Or people who want to challenge me. No way. Yeah. And so I had that for like the first year I opened up my school. I first started just teaching out of a, I rented space from this health club, this uh, fitness club called Ozone. And I just had a sort of like the dance room area. Okay. You know, bring my own mats, bring my own you know, gear, teach over there. I was focusing on teaching expats. Because okay. That's a better money. Better money. There's a lot of expats at that time in China because of all the industry coming in. And the expats didn't speak Chinese uh -huh. and they were hungry for something. They just want to go somewhere and work out where they don't have to struggle with the language. Yeah. You know? right, Suddenly, right, right, Muay Thai right. was available. 
best of all worlds. And I was doing really, really well. Oh. And of course, everyone started hearing about me. People started coming to challenge me or to learn from me, one, <laughs> one or the other. And it usually turns out both, you know, the people would challenge me. Would, then they'd want to learn they'd after learn. they get their yeah, butt yeah, kicked. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. How many battles were you in? Oh, I don't even remember. Really? Every week I would average maybe about two challenges a week. And these were just like straight up fights. Straight up fight. People, they, the <laughs> Chinese people are very respectful. Okay. You know, they won't go in there like in the movies and bring their entire entourage. Well, they kind of did. They bring their <laughs> friends because they want to record, you know. Right, right, right. To watch. On. But they're not super disruptive. They wouldn't like, like gang up on you. Yeah. Normally they'll go and they'll wait until the class is over and then they'll come up. They'll put on the gloves on because they know we don't speak Chinese or something. They'll put the gloves on and they go. Like this, they'll oh. just gesture to me, like, come on, they'll let's beckon bar. you over. Yeah. And then you're like, okay, I know that, I know the drill, put my gloves, you know, get one of my guys to referee the, you know, the, the fight. Wow. And we'd go at it, you know, <laughs> we just go at it, you know. Oh. Yeah. And uh, that's how my, my legacy in China started. This is how it all started. Yeah. I was also like teaching uh, MMA, striking for MMA, things like those. I started teaching some some fighters in China that they, the first professional MMA fighters in China that fought overseas mm. were my students. Out of those guys came the first Chinese fighter in the UFC. Yeah. Zhang Teitran. Yeah. The, so, yeah. So those guys, and then of course, eventually came Li Jingliang. The Zhang Wei, Yeah. Zhang Weili, Yan Xiaonan, Song Kanan. All Ooh, these guys. He just all, fought this weekend, actually. Song Kanan. Weekend, yeah. He lost by- He got beat up by, a little bit. By, but. You know, yeah, unanimous <laughs> session. Not bad. He did, he did well, but then he he's just- tough. Yeah, he's tough. That guy is so guy, yeah. tough, man. So you train all of these- Train all these guys. These superstars. You know? And suddenly, I was the most sought after striking coach in China. Right. You know? And I partnered with Hui Meneses, who was the most sought after grappling coach. Okay. So he's Brazilian. Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Yeah, yeah Brazilian jiu-jitsu. The two of us, we were the head coaches for China top team. Oh, man. Yeah, and which is like the top Chinese Right, like American and, top team, but yeah, exactly. China top team. Yeah. But they're dominant. They were like the top at that time okay. in, in all of China. All the top MMA fighters in China would want to go to China top team because China top team would give them the CTT, would give them the opportunity to fight overseas. Right. And especially in the UFC. So yeah, Teitron was fighting for WEC at that time. And then when WEC got absorbed by the UFC, he also got absorbed into the UFC. They offered them to fight. And it was a big thing, right? The first Chinese fighter to fight in the UFC. And his manager at that time, Aaron, who was also my student, American guy, he came to me and said, coach, can you help Teichuan prepare for the UFC? Because you're UFC the only one debut. I Yeah. You're the only one I know that can help him. Okay. You're the only one I know that the striking is so high level that you can actually help him. What was his background? Sanda. Sanda. Yeah, okay. Yeah, Sanda, yeah. So like Sarah Chang. Like Sarah Chang. Exactly. <laughs> Wushu. Yeah. But for me, it was beyond just the striking. That was my strength. It was also the conditioning. So striking and conditioning. Military style, PMA yeah, style. Yeah, yeah. Man, <laughs> I can get those guys in good shape. I'm like sure. You would not believe, you know. <laughs> and so we got them ready for the UFC. He fought in UFC Sydney. Oh, Troy, I think that was in 2009, I believe. And he fought at that time. Teichon was probably not even a, I think it was like a blue belt in jiu-jitsu. He fought a very seasoned UFC fighter and a black belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and choked the guy out in the first round. Oh, really? Out cold too. Really? Yeah. yeah, he went out. He choked the guy so fast, the guy just went out before he can tap. Oh, wow. Yeah, a yeah. black belt in Jiu-Jitsu. A jiu black belt in Jiu-Jitsu. Oh, yeah. no way. Yeah, that was crazy. So, so that, that put you guys on the map. 
Yeah, put us on the map. Yeah, and then you know came back to uh, China, and you know every the limelight oh. was on Taichuan. Limelight was on me as his coach. My schools just like ballooned. Suddenly, it's not just expats anymore coming to me now. Chinese, it's not just like a little corner of a yeah, dance studio. I wasn't just yeah, exactly. I wasn't just training expats anymore. I was now training like straight up, like straight the up killers China. of China. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Yeah. I had the next team, generation. I had a fight team. I separated my business into training just normal people, right, right, and right. Then training fighters. I had times allotted during the day training fighters. I even had Russian fighters. Coming you know, in, coming in to you know, China to train to Muay Thai. Tra- yeah, yeah. So I this, this Filipino dude to train MMA <laughs> with me and um, conditioning as well. Around this time, it's about 2012, 2013. Life started changing again. Mm. The new chapter started to seep in. I uh, I got a role in a Jackie Chan movie. Oh man, um, called that uh, Police Story. Oh, nice. Just released in 2013. Yes, of course. Yeah, and um, even though I was reluctant about taking the role in the beginning because I was just a replacement for my student who was cast for that role, but he got sick. Oh, interesting. Two days before that, so you know, because he was my student, and I was the one that recommended him. So they're like, Coach, can you step yeah, in just, for your you student? Just please do that. We have no more time to cast. So I'm like, okay. I just have to do that. All know? right. It's just Jackie Chan. Yeah, Fine. It's just Jackie Chan. But man, when I got in there in the set, that was just amazing, man. I mean, I mean it's huge. Jackie Chan. It was Jackie Chan. <laughs> I, I don't even know how to explain how big the set was. Oh, dude. It's just, just big. Where was this? It was, Where uh, was the filming? It was the outskirts of Beijing. Oh, really? It okay. was in an old power plant or something like that. Okay. They converted into whatever the, this un- crazy the underground studio. deal. Yeah. And so I was there for, I think, five days, four days, something like that. And after I shot my scene, the action director, Ha Jun, looked for me, came to me, and uh, he's heard about my martial arts background. He saw me perform and he said, look, I'd like you to join me, huh. join my team. I'm planning to build the first Jackie Chan, the biggest stunt training center in the world. Right. Jackie Chan Training Center for his team. But of course, because the place is so big, he wanted to sustain it and make it an educational facility that will teach not only filmmaking, but action filmmaking and stunts and all stuff. So people around the world will go there. That was his vision, right? Mm. So it was in this place in Tianjin, like uh, right between Beijing and Tianjin. The property was about 34,000 square meters. <laughs> It was basically a small village that they took over. Oh, wow. 34,000 square meters, right? That's and so the, ridiculous. The gym itself that I helped Hajun build, design and build basically was about 3,200 square meters. Wow. It was just massive. And the ceiling was like 100 feet high. So we can do <sighs> rigging and stuff, you know. We became friends. Um, Hajun and I became friends. And then the same year, I got cast into the UFC's Ultimate Fighter China. Oh, man. So they did their reality show, Ultimate Fighter China, and I was cast as one of the coaches. Yes. There's an amazing clip on uh, YouTube. I think it's called, uh, hold on. It's called The Ultimate Fighter China Best Moments. Ah. If you go to, from this person named Larone, but if you go to two minutes and 56 or so seconds, you're going to see Vince kicking the crap out of one of the contestants. Oh, my God. That's so funny. (laughs) You gotta send me that link. I haven't even seen oh, this. Oh, really? Yet. Yeah, yeah. I know. Yeah. I found that. I will send you that link. Yeah, it's crazy. It's hilarious. You but kick him and then he just freezes. Right. He just You're ran, like, come he, on, man. And then he, you, you punch him and kick him again. Yeah, and then he ran out of the cage. And then he leaves the. Yeah, 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 exactly. I don't even know how he got in there, but eventually <laughs> we found out because he's a local guy from Shenyang. 
sort of a local sports celebrity model from Shenyang, and they just wanted one of their they own. wanted a pretty guy, local and pretty guy, a local guy in the show, right? So because he was shot in Shenyang, and so they were able to slip it in. We told them like, look, this is no small thing. Everything is live. This is real fights. Nothing is going to be choreographed. Uh huh. So you filmed on the China Ultimate, Ultimate Fighter, Fighter this reality TV show, the first season ever in China. Yeah, yeah, dude, that's crazy. That's amazing. Nine weeks of paradise for me. This cemented you know, my will to really go back into film permanently. This is the one. This is the one. After this, it was like, that's it. I couldn't think of anything <laughs> better than that experience, right? How am I going to live life looking backwards at Ultimate Fighter, feeling like, oh, that's the best I ever got. I'll never get back to that again. I couldn't do that. I have to live that life again, you know? Yeah, you were telling me last time, they like put you up in a five-star hotel. So I am, um, so yeah, so I stayed um, for nine weeks. I lived in the presidential suite in the Kempinski The hotel. Kempinski, yeah. Beautiful man is like, <laughs> it's like living in a freaking luxury, like two bedroom apartment. In Shenyang. In Shenyang, the food, Everything. I had my own, you know, Nescafe. What what do you call those? The capsules. The capsules. Unlimited capsules. Unlimited capsules. I I was so greedy that I would actually take some of these capsules because it was unlimited. If you run out of it, you just call housekeeping to bring some more. That's funny. You just fill your like luggage with. I was. I was actually. I would like actually ship them out to my house in Beijing. No. Yeah. 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 I was like just ship them out. I'm like I would like take. Don't worry. Dana White's paying for this. Not even Kampinski would pay. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, that's already that's part of the package, you know. <laughs> yeah, wow. it was just, and the gym that we trained in, my God, it was beautiful. It was basically a UFC gym built in a soundstage, you know, with cameras So they created everywhere. this just for the show? Just for the show. Wow. Just for a show, yeah. Cameras, lights, everywhere. Everywhere you go, they have cameras. You're followed everywhere. And if you're not being followed, there's spider cams on walls everywhere. Right, right, right. Yeah, the only place you can like go without a camera is like if you go take a dump. Right, that's it. But everything else, you know, you can follow by cameras. (laughs) Yeah, so it was an amazing, amazing time. For nine weeks, we filmed the first season. And at the end of that, I was mortally convinced that this is going to be my life. So I made all the steps focused on making this happen. You know, I started selling my gym, selling my business. I was making a lot of money too off my gyms. You know, I opened and sold 12 gyms all over China. Yeah. Yeah. So I was making a lot of money. I didn't have to do this. You know, it was comfortable and I actually enjoyed the job. Not like working for software. But I mean, this is your passion. It's my passion. Like All throughout your life. I mean, what job do you have out there where you could make a lot of money going to work half naked? Exactly. Yeah. I'm like half naked and ripped. I'm like wearing shorts all day without a shirt. With abs. With with abs. And then with like deadly elbows. Yeah. And, and, you know, and (laughs) And a smile. Yeah. A smile and teaching women's classes. Exactly. This guy. This guy. (laughs) (laughs) We know. We know how you got Sarah. Yeah. how did you get to 12 gyms in china this is crazy well what i would do and this is not by design either it's by (laughs) sort of like by accident or by process i had this one small boutique gym that was doing really really well and then someone came up to me and said i want to build a gym like that can you help me oh 
So I said, okay. So I helped him like open up a small boutique gym. I licensed my system to him. I trained him. I gave him instructors and all that stuff. And so he doesn't have to go through the years of learning Muay Thai like I did just to be able to run a gym. So I gave him instructors. I brought in instructors from the Philippines, trained them in my system, certified them and deployed them to him. So this is your own proprietary system. Yeah, yeah. That you created. And I even opened up the gym with him as a partner. Right. right. And then... Once it was open, after about a year, the memberships have ballooned to, I think, somewhere like 80 to 90 students. Mm. So that's very lucrative for a small boutique space yeah, like that. Yeah, for sure. Right? And the, the rates are really high. This and is in that, Beijing. This is Beijing. Okay. Yeah, yeah. The rates are really high for Beijing, especially. I mean, but people are willing to pay because of the brand. Mm. So I sold that to him. Made good money. And then I went off the model. I started opening a bunch of other places. like okay. Modeled after my main location. Right. But I always kept them small, like 200 to 300 square meters. Tops. Okay. That way rent was cheap. It's how you run the system. It's how do you schedule the classes and the programs that you put in that's important. And it's instructors most of all. So I really believe that in the martial arts business, if anyone wants to open a martial arts business, it's not like a gym business. It's not driven by equipment. It doesn't matter how expensive your equipment is. Right. A martial arts business is instructor driven. Mm -hmm. What matters is the instructor. You can have a purely an empty space with maybe like one punching bag. Exactly. But if you have the most charismatic, knowledgeable, experienced instructor out there, you're going to generate a ton right. of people. And I was a shining example of that because of my charisma, my knowledge, my experience, people were gravitating to me without even any equipment. Right, right, you know? right, and, right. And um, I just had a pair of tie pads when right. I first started. And as long as you have the right system and then you promote your system through different ways. Muay Thai traditionally doesn't have black belts or the belt system. Mm -hmm. And at the frowns of some other fellow Muay Thai instructors, I went and started my own belt system. Oh, interesting. People are like, what? Yeah, what are you doing? This it's is like, sacrilegious. It's sacrilegious. How it's dare like, you? It's like giving black belts to wrestlers. Right, right, right. You know, there's yeah, no exactly, such thing, you know? Exactly, yeah. I'm like, look, I don't care what you think. I know, I got it's my- commerce. I got it's a business. plan. Exactly. I've got these people who don't want to become professional fighters. Right, 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 you know, right, they're, right, they're, right. They're moms, they're 12 year old kids, their dads are working as like vice presidents of car manufacturers. Right, right, right. They could care less about stepping in the ring. Exactly. But how they do want those belts. They want those belts because how are they going to gauge their progress? Exactly. And they know. They know that Muay Thai traditionally has no belts, right. but they need to gauge their progress. They exactly. need to know what level they're at, you know, and they need to show. They need to prove that they're they're that level. Not just because the instructor said so, but because they have the certificate to show. And so I would have like formal testing for ranks and people would actually, I mean, I'd have guys who are like 60 years old testing for ranks. Wow. I've had kids, you know, are 10 years old and their moms are like, you know, 40 years old testing for ranks and they love it. Uh -huh. They love it because they have progress, you know, and they can see themselves and they, you know, they flaunt their certificates and stuff. You Did know? you have the traditional belt, white I did. I had the traditional belt colors. Okay. Yeah. But I called the ranks Khan. Okay. Because in Thai, Khan means- Like a Dan. Like, yeah. Like a, like a grade. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. It means grade. So I had the different Khans and I gave them colors, obviously. So people like colors. So I gave them colors. The system, people laughed at in the beginning. Like, you know, the hardcore guys of laughed course. at it. Of course, yeah. But man, I made a lot of money. <laughs> You know, exactly. And the system stuck. And it, because of that, I had the real system. I had the real system that was marketable and transferable. And what was the name? Black Tiger. This name is a big name. Yeah, it's a Black big Tiger. Name. It used to be Black Tiger Muay Thai. Now it's Black Tiger MMA. Right. Yeah. You created Black Tiger. 
I created Black Tiger back in 1991, 1991 back in San Diego. Oh, this yeah. comes from San Diego. From San Diego. Taking over China. Yeah. That's yeah, crazy. Exactly. Yeah. And I created a build system also in San Diego because I had students who didn't know how to measure their progress. Right. I had students that did not want to fight, but they wanted to become instructors. Mm. So how do you get someone, how do you know that someone is good enough to become an instructor if he's never fought in the ring? Right. Well, he has to know the basics. He has to know how to coach. He has to know how to, what to teach. Right. And how do you gauge it? Through a systemic educational yeah. system. Need some right? assessment. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it needs assessment, testing, and certification. So I did that. And then, of course, I enriched it even more when I moved to China. And suddenly, Black Tiger became worldwide. I have graduates from the Black Tiger system that went on and opened up Black Tiger schools in France, in the UK, in several states in America. There's two in Japan. Um, I mean, they were everywhere. Oh, and in man. China alone, there's so many. And then on top of that, I created a subset of the Black Tiger system called MFT, Martial Fitness Training. So MFT, what I created that for is for fitness trainers only. Because um, one thing I proved about Muay Thai and boxing is pad work. Doing pad work yeah. is an extremely good exercise. Like in a one hour class, one hour session, I can have my students lose like mm. a thousand calories, yeah, a thousand yeah, yeah, to yeah, two thousand yeah, yeah. calories just doing this pad work and all that. So I thought I had a student who worked in the the fitness industry, this guy Hank, and we we were thinking, you know, this is great for fitness people. It's a little bit different. It helps them get in shape, but it's different from lifting weights, from right. running on a treadmill, whatever, from Pilates or whatever, right? It's like so, Taibo, which like, you also have a connection with. Well, exactly. It's like Taibo, right? So, but it's more real because yeah. you're hitting something, you feel like a real fighter. So what's the formula there? What we do is we go to fitness gyms all over China. And we teach and we certify normal fitness trainers that are not fighters on how to hold pads. Hold, yeah, hold, hold the, the pads. pads. So to give their customers like a good workout. Right, 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 right. To right. supplement whatever they're doing, whether it's uh, X or whatever, um, like all this. Oh, CrossFit. Cross, or, yeah, CrossFit yeah, 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 and all yeah. that stuff, right? So whatever they do, they can add this to their programs. Mm. It became a hit. Um, now I don't even physically go and certify, but because I sold that, that system to my partner and he's running with it now, it's been around for like, I don't know, maybe about 15 years now or something like that. But my signature is in all the certificates, oh, even okay. though I don't give the tests anymore. I, I, see. I didn't get the certification. That's part of the um, deal. Because I've retired. Yeah. So I've technically certified over 30,000 fitness trainers all over China. Oh, wow. Through but, this MFT system. Which is a subset of Black Tiger. That's crazy. Yeah. So, yeah. So that was pretty cool, you know, legacy to look at. I still see people like from time to time, like, you know, on WeChat post, like, oh, I got my new MFT certification. I'm like, oh, dude, <laughs> that's mine. No, exactly. that's not mine anymore. That used to be, but. I mean, when you were at your peak with like 12 gyms, you were telling me that your life was pretty amazing. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty amazing. I had a lot of money. You were driving <laughs> was, around in fancy cars. Well, I had a, I had a business partner back then that gifted me, quote unquote. You know, he, this is China. He, he, yeah, and this is China. He leased a Lamborghini for me. Oh, man. And so I was driving around in a Lamborghini. You were driving around? No way. Uh, this black tiger in a Lamborghini yeah, in yeah. Beijing. Short-lived, but at least it happened, right? You know, checked it off the bucket list. Yeah, exactly. You know? 
Yeah, but uh, life was really good. I mean, you know, life is good. It's a lot of fun. I did a lot of traveling. I worked a lot, though. That's the only thing. It's like, yeah. I, you know, the only thing about this business is you're constantly working because most of my money came from private lessons. And I was averaging six to seven private lessons a day, a day. So Just we're talking hustling. about eight hours of teaching back mm. to back, you know, seven days a week. I had like no life, but that was my life. I really enjoyed being in the gym. I'd be in the gym all day. I can live there if I have to. Right. It was pretty much my life for years and years and years until the film bug. Call, yeah, I caught Start the film bug again. Start calling you again. No, at that point I had like a bunch of money in my bank account and I'm like, okay, I can start losing work and start moving towards, you know, my film career. I don't mind not making any money because I can live off what I have, mm. you know, and Embarking on a film career was not easy and it was not cheap by all means, but at least I had the financial support. But you also mentioned to me last time that there was also a, a crash. Oh, there was a crash. I ran out of money. I mean, how much can you, you know, you, you go for, you pursue your dreams with no income for two years. I don't care how much money you made. Right. You know, especially in the film industry, traveling, shooting short films in my own dime, going to film festivals, going to film markets, trying to sell, you know, traveling everywhere, meeting people, networking, going back and forth between the Philippines and Beijing all the time, staying in hotels, nice hotels, stuff like that. It adds up. Every little penny adds up. You know, it's more and more. Every time you go out to dinner, you spend 2,000 pesos, whatever, you know. Yeah. And over a span of two years, it basically squeezed me dry. Oh, really? I was down to like my last few dollars, literally, you know, <laughs> when my, my film got funded. Oh, wow, really? I got funded for my first feature film. I mean, oh. I didn't know. But of course, martial arts, Muay Thai, has always emboldened me to pursue my dreams because I know in the back of my mind that at the end of the day, if I have to, I'll never live on the streets because uh, I can always teach Muay Thai. Right, exactly. I can always go back to coaching. Even if it wasn't a lot of money to start with, it'll be enough to, right. make, to make some money. So I always have that in the back of my mind. Not that I want to, but it's my fallback. What happened to Black Tiger, the gym? So, yeah, really lucky. Not so lucky, but because... I could have done more, but no, I mean, I feel I was really lucky because one of my former students is John Whaley, the, the two-time champion, le legendary, legendary woman, female, yeah, yes. female and only Asian uh, UFC world champion. Yep. She bought my school. She bought Black Tiger for me. No way. Yeah. She was basically <laughs> branching out from China top team at that time. Okay. Her and her manager, and they were looking for a new home for themselves to start their own you know, MMA empire. Right. And it just so happened that I was, I put up my school for sale. I put up Black Tiger for sale. So they came to me and said, you know, we want to buy Black Tiger. So she had some money. She, she was, had some uh, money. She had a backer. Okay. You now she had people that believed in her. I believe in her. I know her from the very beginning. I knew she was going to be a champion. The way she fights, the way, even from early days, man. There's an article in the South China Morning Post, UFC 261. Jiang Wei Li's first coach knew she'd be China's first champ the day she walked through the door. Yep. This is about Mr. Vincent Soberano, one of first MMA coaches in China and one of Jiang Wei Li's first coaches. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dude, so what was that like having her walk through the doors? Like, do you remember that? It's just one of those things. I have a lot of students like that where they walk through the doors. The first time you watch them train, you're like, oh, this, this one's going to go places. You know, like the leech, guys like those. The fir yeah, first time the you leech. see them, you're like, oh my God, this guy's a beast. <laughs> yep. You know, there's people like that. And there's the normal people. These people are not normal. From the get-go, they're just not normal. I know. You know. So yeah, I believed in her from the very beginning. I remember uh, we sat down over dinner because 
Uh, they were buying my school. They were trying to talk me into staying on as a as a coach, okay, as the head coach, which I did for just a short time because I was, you know, I was. I told them because of my film career. And yeah, stuff. I want to go make movies. Yeah, yeah, and that, that's the reason I'm selling my school, right? So, right. So I, I sat down with her and I told her, I "says Maria, you don't need me. You Maria, who is Maria? Oh, that's John Whaley. That was her." <laughs> <laughs> no one, not many people know about that exactly. except the people from her past. But yes, that was exactly. her, that was her English name a long time ago. This is a world exclusive, everyone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jung yeah. Wei Maria, please do not kick me because yeah, because uh, <laughs> yeah, I revealed. That. I have all yeah, yeah all due respect. Yeah, she would definitely for Maria. she would definitely choke you out right now exactly. if you called her Maria. Yeah. So yeah. Wow, she Mar went by Maria, Maria aka Wei Li. Yes. Or Wei Li aka Maria. Exactly. Yeah. Anyway, so I told her, I says, look, you don't need, you guys don't need me. Huh. Yeah. I mean, you, I mean, you're Jiang Wei Li. You're Jiang Wei Li. Yeah. You know, move on. Move right. forward. You right. Know? You can take yeah, Black I, Tiger. I don't think I can teach you enough anymore. Mm. You know, you're enough. Yeah, you know? dude. You're enough. She's a beast. You know? And um, anyway, so I moved on. They took over Black Tiger. And Black Tiger is now the biggest MMA school in China, the most prestigious and in the world, it resonates. Yeah. I mean, you see all the training clips of her in China when she's training. You see Black Tiger behind her. You see right, her wearing right, Black right. Tiger shirts because she is Black Tiger. Exactly. Not not me anymore. I'm not Black Tiger anymore. Right. Yeah, Jiang Wei Li is Black Tiger. So what did you sell her exactly? The brand? The gyms? I originally sold the gym to her because they just needed a home. But once they saw the impact of the brand around the world, they wanted it too. Okay. So I did that. So I sold, sold pretty much the whole package. The whole package. Yeah. Okay. The yeah. training system. Yeah. The training brand. System, training system, the brand, you know, what, what they would do with it. It's up to them. Up to them. Yeah. You just let go of that. But to basically, basically what it is to is security for them that in case I decide to go back into martial arts, I cannot reopen the Black Tiger. Right. That was the clause. Yeah. That was the clause. Yeah. yeah. Which happened. Because I had a guy come to me and I was at the time I kind of needed the money and he wanted to open his own Black Tiger gym. But okay. I just sold. Right. I sold everything to Wei Li and, you know, and, and Tai. I told the guy, I can't open the Black Tiger. It's, it's done. I sold it already. Right, it's not right. mine anymore. So I ended up opening a gym that's as close as possible. Since oh. I'm the king of Black Tiger, he opened up a gym called Tiger King. Oh, that's amazing. And not the, to and, be confused and, 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 with and, the Netflix yeah. Tiger King. <laughs> exactly. And the logo is a black tiger, but in a different pose. <laughs> I see. It was pretty funny, but it's cool. It's cool. It was really the cool. Tiger yeah. King, the black mm -hmm. tiger king right here. Yeah. Yeah. Just can't call it black tiger. Just call it any way you want. Exactly. Tiger King, Tiger Prince. Some other color, purple, so, pink, yeah, purple, rainbow. Pink, it's all good. But yeah. black tiger yeah. belongs so, to Jiang Wei Li now. So that was it. And then I moved on with my uh, film career. Oh, and, man. Uh, yeah, that was crazy. But uh, the last gym that I had was Tiger King. Okay. Yeah, Black Tiger had already, they're on their own. And, and you said they're, they're up in, uh, you guys- In Shunyi area. Yeah, in Shunyi. The, and then they opened up in Lidu. Okay. Lidu area, in Beijing. And I know they have other locations now. They're just ginormous now. Right, right, right. So that Tiger King, you also got rid of it as well or got out of that i got out of that okay yeah. yeah the deal there that was not my school the deal there was just i was gonna help this guy open the school and be the face for the school for a while until it took off okay so yeah yeah and i know you're too humble but last time when we were talking sarah was here and sarah's like dude you haven't even told him about all of the students that you have affected throughout your career 
So can you tell us some of these stories of some of these kind of students, some of this impact you have, you know, as a fellow educator as well, mm -hmm. I know the impact of a great teacher, right? Or education. Sure, sure. So can you tell some of those stories of your great students, some memories? Well, I mean, people who, who followed my martial arts career, they know me for my accomplishments as a coach, as a fighting champion, then eventually as a coach of champions, especially a UFC coach and stuff like that, right? So my entire career seems to be marked with that legacy. But underneath that, there's a legacy that is even closer to my heart. It's there's a lot of students, not everyone wants to take martial arts to become a champion or to become a, you know, a fighter professional or whatever. Majority of people that took martial arts are doing it for the personal reasons, to battle the personal demons, things like those. To stave off bullies, stave to have off confidence. Bullies, yeah, to live the best years of their lives. You know? Exactly. So, Things like those to heal their soul. Amazing as it sounds, in martial arts, you know, people think violence, fighting, all that stuff. It's really not. You know, it's really not. It's body and soul. Mm -hmm. you know? And um, the, on the soul part, I feel that I've helped more people heal um, whatever it is that they needed. You know, through a simple thing as martial arts. Mm. One of the things that almost brings me to tears is I've had this guy one day come to me. I remember he had like a deformed arm mm. and I thought it was just deformed from birth, whatever. And he told me, he goes, do you think there's any hope of me learning Muay Thai? I've always followed Muay Thai. I've always dreamed of doing Muay Thai, but you know, in Thailand, they won't even take me because of my arm. Mm. And I'm like, I'll take you, you know, I'll teach you. You don't need that arm. You have another, you have a good other arm mm. and you have good, you have good two legs. I'll mm -hmm. teach you Muay Thai without the arm. Um, the Spanish guy. And he started training with me for almost a year. And then one day he just disappeared. I mean, but when he was training with me, he was coming every day. He was mm. one of my best students. He worked so hard that even without one deformed arm, he would actually spar. I mean, mm. I, would, I would be scared for watching him spar because he would go at it right. with the other guys. I mean, he'd tell the other guys, don't worry about this arm. Just, you know, fight me like you fight a normal guy, you know? And, oh, yeah, and he so, was loving it. Right, right, you know, right. Not, it there's no animosity or any hostility, but he was just having fun doing stuff, right? And then one day he just disappeared. Oh. And um, never came back. No word, no nothing. Didn't ask her text messages. So I just thought, okay, moved on. Maybe found something else to do. You know, just like many people. Of course. I have many people that could go through that, right? You know, so, and about maybe almost two years later, over a year later, I run into his ex-girlfriend, who's oh. Chinese. And I ask him, hey, where's, uh, I forgot his name. It was like Pedro or something like that. Okay. And she was like, she burst into tears. And I said, what, what happened? She goes, he went back to Spain because he went back to die. I'm Whoa. like, what? She goes, he had polio. And he was dying. And, oh, and he said, when he met you, he was actually getting ready to go back to Spain. Then he met you. Then he decided to stay longer as long as he possibly can. You wow. know, and stay with you and train with you because he loved Muay Thai. And no one's ever given him the chance. And she said, this was the happiest times of his life. And he wanted to send you a message to tell you thank you for giving him the happiest last few months of his life. You know, and um, he just couldn't tell you before he left because he was really, really he was getting really, really sick. Oh, and wow. so he needed to go. And so he had to leave in a hurry. He wanted me to tell you this. But she told me that she couldn't tell me this. She couldn't get it to herself to come to my school to tell me this because she was, it's just the memory of it. You right. Know? You know, she was just distraught. And she told me, I was like, dearest man. I was like, oh my God. You know? Oh man. And you she told me, she goes, you have no idea 
how happy you made this guy feel. Right. And his last yeah, moments. His last moments. Last years of life. Of life. Yeah. So things like that. I had another student. I had a girl who, um, she was cutting herself. Okay. Self-harm. She was self-harm. Cutting her wrists. Yeah. Okay. And then she actually was reluctant in taking classes until I kind of started working with her a little bit and she started taking classes. To make a long story short, she stopped, you know, harming yeah. herself. She dove into Muay Thai full-time. She even became a certified instructor. Oh, in the Black she, Tiger system. In Black Tiger system. She moved on. When she was in college, she started teaching kickboxing college. Oh, Became popular and um, she works in the showbiz industry. She actually was like pageant uh, pageant queen. She won, you know, some awards and miss something. Miss you know? something, yeah. Yeah. And uh, she's pretty successful. I follow her career now and she's uh, she's gorgeous. She's just gorgeous. You know? oh, yeah. She's Chinese. She's half. Okay. Not half Chinese, half Asian something. Okay. She's gorgeous. Absolutely gorgeous. Like you do a triple take when you see her. Right. You know, so yeah. You yeah. mentioned that during her speech, her speech for a miss somewhere, miss yeah, some yeah. state. Yeah, exactly. She uh, mentioned that what empowered her to rise above her demons, to to squash her, her demons was uh, was kickboxing. Oh. Uh, and training under me. And, and she's good. She's really right. good. You know, she's good enough to compete if she wanted to, but wow. of course, you know, it's her thing. She doesn't want Beauty to. Beauty pageant winner. Yeah, yeah. Beauty kick pageant. some butt. Yeah, so it's amazing, you know, the things that I had a kid who was tiny and um, he was way smaller than everyone in his class. He was being bullied all the time and he didn't want to take Muay Thai in the beginning because he was too cool for school. Kind right, of thing, right, know? right, right. But he embraced it over time, became really good at it and he taught some bullies a lesson and they never touched him again and he ended <laughs> up becoming the most popular kid in school. <laughs> you know, <laughs> things like those. I've had other students and stuff. You know, I had this one student who was a star basketball and volleyball player huh. and she was being groomed to be in the U.S. Olympic team. But she blew her knee and okay. she lost that chance. You know, she went to school like anyone else. But you know what she did? She moved to kickboxing, became a coach and did really, really well. Things like those, you know, it affected so many people, normal people in their lives that I still get messages from people saying, you know, I owe you everything. I'm like, you don't owe me everything. You paid your dues. Right, right, like, right. I said, no, you, this is beyond paying our dues. This is, mm. you know, it's something money can't buy. Yeah, you know? exactly. Yeah. Jiang Weili, at age 17, she moved to Beijing where she worked various odd jobs. She, Cashier at yeah, a supermarket, I kindergarten teacher, security guard, and hotel desk clerk. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you I remember that? Is I that remember that. When I remember she when she was working for a department store as a cashier. No way. And in her off time, she came and trained with you. Trained, yeah. yeah. She trained at the China top team, which, you know, where I was coaching as well. Right, right, right. And then what about the leech? You mentioned about the leech as oh, well. He was a graduate of, from the sports academy, you know, um, Wushu and Sanda, former Sanda fighter slash a national team member kind of thing. But after Sanda, I mean, where else is there? And mm. he was pretty much like a, an assistant and towel boy to Taichuan, you know? Wow, yeah. really? Yeah, and then when Taichuan would train, he would be there just to help out, you know, just carrying stuff, you know, and carrying the bags. And while Taichuan was training with me, he'd be over by the bags hitting the bags. Right. I remember like walking over to him, watching him hit the bags. And like I told him, says, Leach, you're going to be a top contender, if not champion of UFC one day. Wow, really? Yeah, I can see it. Was he as bad as he is now? Or was he like a nice guy? And Because he's a, he's oh, a mean looking dude when he fights. Mean, 
He's so mean when he fights. <laughs> exactly. But he's so nice. And that's what I'm wondering. There's not yeah. a mean bone in that guy. I mean, he's so friendly and he's he has so such friendly. an amazing yeah. personality. He's yeah. like rocking the suits now. Yeah, yeah. He's loving that life. Him and Taichan, they're both like really fierce looking and very like, you know, mean in the in, in the cage. But mm. in real life, those guys are like really super nice guys. Right. They're, they're softies, you know. They're both dads. Huh. They're both family men. They love their kids. They dote over their kids. All that stuff. They're just they're just uh, really really great guys, and you know, just really easy to get along with. For one of my movies, I actually got those two to come over and have some cameo roles in my movie. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. In oh, the, that's and, cool. In the Trigonal, yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Leech was in there. Yeah, yeah. and then yeah. Taichuan was his corner man. Oh, yeah. really? Yeah, that's they, amazing. They, they they traveled all the way from Beijing to Bacolod, where we were filming the movie. I mean, I paid for their expenses and everything, but they didn't charge me a dime. Oh, really? They just wanted to support me because this was my second feature film. And they're so proud of me that they just wanted to come and support me. Ah, oh, that's amazing. Yeah. yeah. In the part two, we'll get deeper into all of this. Yeah, the yeah. Filipino chapter of your life, another crazy chapter. Yeah, yeah. But before that, when did you meet Sarah Chang? Because I think this was also during your time, and this is kind of the segue between China and the Philippines, it right? It was l- literally the segue. Literally the segue. It was my last day as a coach. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, at Tiger King. Oh, at so, Tiger King. Yeah. Not even the Black Tiger. Yeah, yeah. This is yeah. at Tiger so King. So we had the open Tiger King. I was coaching there for a while, but then I got funded for my, my feature film. And um, we've been doing pre-prod for a few months. And then finally, we get the green light. It was December. And we were going to start filming in February, late February. And so I had to go back to the Philippines in December. So I gave my farewell to Tiger King, told them that, you know, I may come back as a guest, as a friend, whatever. And, you know, once in a while, maybe even teach some seminars, workshops, but that's it for me. It was my last session that night. And I was actually training Leech at the gym because he was getting ready for his fight in Singapore. Sarah, the day before, she called me up out of the blue and said, I'm filming this thing for Jet Li, for the Jet Li channel. Oh. And I need a gym as a location. Can we use your gym? And I'm like, sure, come on in, come over tomorrow. And she did. She came over the next day and she came with her director. Now they stuck around and they watched the training and they did their own thing. She had someone that she was choreographing fights with. So they were off in one side training and from time to time they'd come and watch us train. They'd just sit there in the mat and watch us train. Of course, uh, I tell everyone that she was taking pictures of me because, you know, I have this killer abs, but. <laughs> She'll probably tell you that she, she did. Oh, she it. did. It, it Last time we were it here, wasn't me. there was a little argument. <laughs> Sarah said, I was taking pictures of the leech. Yeah. And Vince is like, nah, no, nah, I've seen the pictures. I have receipts. <laughs> <laughs> so you were sure, there with sure. your shirt off, with my shirt training off, the leech, usual, you know, with this uh, martial arts superstar of a woman yeah, there. Yeah. I'd met Sarah like almost a year before that. At the Jackie Chan Training Center. Yeah, with Sam Hargrave as well. With Sam, she That's was what she Sam, mentioned. Yeah, she was uh, auditioning for a role in Sam Hargrave's movie, Wolf Warrior 2, where Sam right. Hargrave was the action director. And Hajun asked me to come over to help him out because there's a lot of people coming to the center. I just went there with him and just hung out. And he said, well, you know, let me know if you see anyone that you think is good potential. I pointed out Sarah of all people. Really? Not just because she's pretty, but because, she, <laughs> man, she moves. She's like, yeah. she's convincing when she's Training from the age of five years old. And it's not because there's other girls there who are wushu like practitioners. Oh, who, right. They've been it's training China. since they were kids too, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah but they're yeah. too graceful. Right. They're they don't too, have that American swag. 
they don't have the swag. They yeah, don't yeah, have yeah, the yeah, like yeah. The impact. I mean, Sarah, when she throws a punch, it looks like it hurts. Right. Yeah. These other girls, when they throw a punch, it looks like they're doing graceful. They're doing ballet. Right. Or something, right. Right. You know? Right. She was very convincing to me. She was convincingly badass to me, you know, oh. but still feminine and still pretty and still all that, you know. And um, so I told Hedgen that I think that, you know, Sarah is probably one of the best, you know, bets in there. Anyway, I don't know if that affected anything. Right. But she went on and she worked in Wolf Warrior too. I didn't see her for a long time after that until. Um, until uh, oh, I, saw, I saw in one party one time, but that was just briefly. But then until she came to my gym. Right then, before you were leaving. That night I was leaving, I was taking the red eye flight to the Philippines. And so I had That's to leave the crazy. gym. I told her, I says, oh, I got to go. You guys enjoy, just, you know, feel right at home. You can stay as long as you want to the gym. She asked me where I was going. I said, I'm going to the Philippines. And she says, why? And I said, because I'm filming a movie. And she was really surprised because she didn't know I was a director. Right. And then when she found out, she's like, she whips out her USB <laughs> and gives it to me. And she goes, well, just in case you need a girl who can fight and act. You know, you can check out my reel and all that stuff. It's all there. Sarah, 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 Sarah. Sarah. always oh ready. Oh my God. Always what a hustler, ready. this girl. Such a hustler. This lady. <laughs> Make a long story short, she was exactly what me and the producers were looking for. This is, you already back in the Philippines. We, we had already finished casting, but we weren't happy with our final casting, especially the lead role. So when they saw her and the producers saw her, they were just like, my God. Let's do everything we can to get her. Are you serious? From this USB? Yeah. We had to change the script because she's not Filipino. Right. We turned the entire movie into an English-speaking movie. Oh, wow. Yeah, just so we can accommodate Sarah. So it was supposed to be We a changed the character, the lead character from a Filipino woman to a Chinese-American woman. And uh, the whole thing changed. Basically, the script changed. Sarah, Sarah, yeah. Sarah, powerful yeah. woman, you. And then after that, it's like Sarah was just one movie after the other. Not just my movies, but she was busy, man. She was doing really well. Was this Blood Hunters? Yeah, Blood Hunters oh, was my first okay. uh, feature film. Okay, yeah, so yeah. that is also yeah. where you guys met Roxanne. Yeah, yeah. That's okay, it. Yeah, our yeah, buddy Roxanne. Exactly. So shout out to Roxanne. Yeah, exactly. She was well. awesome in that. You know, she also kind of saved the day because we also needed someone to fill that role. You know, because that role was written in because originally we, I wrote that role because I wanted Sarah to play that role because she's not Filipino. Mm. So we were just going to put her in a supporting role. But after everything, the producer still thought like, no, 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 you can't put her in a supporting role. She's the next Mulan. You got to put her in the lead role. Right. So now we had an empty spot and, oh, and we were I like see. maybe less than two months away from filming. So we had to bring someone quickly. And I saw Roxanne at the time and I'm like, she's, she's perfect for this role. Yeah. She doesn't look too bad on camera either. Yeah. Yeah. She's really good. She's really athletic. I know. Yeah. Yeah. More yeah, athletic yeah. than she probably will admit. Exactly. But I, I, you know, I helped train her for this role and she did really good. And, you know, we moved on or did other movies. Sarah, no matter what her role in the movie, even if it's just a small role, she keeps stealing the show because she's so unique. There's no one out there that's, you know, is like her. Even in Trigonal, she stole the show, even though she had a smaller role. Big things coming. Big things coming. And there's big things coming. Exactly. Especially for Sarah. But yeah, I mean, so that's how we met. And, and then, then that we starts cast her. this huge she, new chapter. Yeah. When we, she went to the Philippines to shoot this movie, it started a new chapter. Exactly. In both our lives. Exactly. And you're going to just have to wait for part two to hear the rest that's to hear the, this crazy story because that's a cool story because there's a lot more to come oh, that's in a that cool story. story 
You think I'm exciting on my own? Wait till you hear about me and Sarah together. together. Oh my goodness. I know. There's stories about buying islands, about filming all kinds of things, yeah. all kinds of crazy shenanigans. About ho holding Chinese producers at gunpoint. Exactly. <laughs> Some PMA connections come back yeah, yeah. in episode two in yeah. the follow-up. Okay. Oh so gosh. before that, final note, we'll leave everyone with the biggest teaser of all. I don't know how much you can reveal. It is a teaser, but I mentioned that you are working on a big budget, huge Netflix show. You are going back to your, as you mentioned to me last time, your true love, which is performing, is acting, right. being in front of the camera rather than behind the camera. Yeah. So you are able to fill this dream, which you kind of put off when you went to SDSU, right? You wanted to kind of be behind the camera, but now... Now you are able to be in front of the camera and be in this huge role. Yeah, yeah. In, it's really cool. I think two days, you will be flying back to the Philippines to yeah. resume filming. Yeah, yeah. Okay. To start filming, yeah. What yeah, can you yeah. tell us about this? Well, most of this is know, probably under wraps. Yeah, I'm still under NDA because we haven't even started filming it yet. We are about to start filming. But okay. anyway, the what I can reveal is what a lot of people already know about it. I'm going to be working and uh, I have a, huge role. I was cast in this role more than a year ago in November of last year. And that's why I had to grow a beard and mustache. Mm, look like an ex-con. Yeah. Yeah. I grow my hair long and everything. Having trouble just, getting through airport security. Oh yeah. Yeah. I look, <laughs> I look really mean right now. Scaring your two daughters. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very mean. Very, <laughs> you know, very scary. I play the villain, like a lead villain in this Netflix miniseries. It's a Netflix global original. So mm. Netflix is actually producing funding this series. It's a Filipino, uh, Filipino production. language, Filipino production, but Netflix produced, Netflix funded. So the budget is probably the biggest of any Filipino production in history. To date. Wow. Yeah. yeah. It's huge, 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 huge. And uh, they're pulling all stops in this one. Oh man. It's great. It's crazy. From what I've seen so far, they've been in pre-production for more than a year. I know. Yeah. That's crazy. Since you can I think, tell the scale of this yeah, thing. Since I think like last quarter of last year. And all of this year, we haven't filmed yet. We're not going to start filming until around end of January. Okay. Next year. Right, 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 That's right. That's how big the scale of this uh, miniseries There's is. There's so many things to put in place. Yeah, so much yeah. training. Yeah. yeah You're so doing much a training. lot of like unconventional training as well for this yeah. role. I had to learn how to ride horses. Exactly. Because I have a lot of action scenes in horses. Like, That's dope. Yeah, yeah. Before, I mean, I had to do this horseback riding training course and stuff. And I still, it's ongoing. I still keep training because right, I, right, I have right. to get really better at it. But before this, all I've done was pony rides with someone holding the pony. <laughs> so, really? So you didn't have really like uh, cavalry training at PMA? No, hell no. I couldn't even gallop a horse. Right. But now you're Genghis Khaning through Philippines. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. My character is like a Genghis Khan. Exactly. Much. Yeah, this so. is a historical character <laughs> yeah. in the yeah. making. In the future. In the, exactly. Yeah. In the yeah. making. Yeah. So it's a dystopian series. Oh, so it's, uh, so it's going to be dark. Yeah, it's very dark, very dystopian era of in the near future, Philippines. Um, a lot of fighting, a lot of action, a lot of martial arts. I but, think some sex as well. Hmm. Oh, not, not on my side. Unfortunately. Uh, <laughs> I'm just a bad guy. <laughs> I just kill people and uh, fight people and right. fight for the leadership of uh, this entire civilization. It sounds a little like Game of Throny. Kind of. Yeah. Kind of. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, minus the sex, I think. Okay, okay. Not yeah, as much sex. Yeah. Minus the nudity. I see. You know, so. Okay. More action. The action is crazy. 
it's really cool. I'm really looking forward to it. Everything is outrageous, man. We have a fight director from the U.S. Oh. Yeah, Rafael Kayanan, who was the one that taught Benicio Del Toro and Tommy Lee Jones in the movie The Hunted. Oh. They used the Filipino martial arts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 In the States, it's like a very well-known fight director. Right. Fight choreographer, especially in Filipino martial arts. It's directed by the legendary Eric Mati. Oh. In the Philippines, he's one of the most... Uh, He's a legend of yeah, the, Filipino uh, Filipino film. cinema, yeah. Yeah. Basically. He's amazing. Yeah, he's also from my hometown, from Bacolod. Oh, really? Yeah, it's really cool. Okay. Yeah. Sugar and spice and everything nice. Yeah. This series is going to be amazing. Just lots of action, lots of things no one's ever seen in Filipino screen before. And it's going to be released worldwide. It's not right. just for Netflix Asia. It's for Netflix Global. Kind of like Squid Games, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So everyone's going everyone's gonna to see this. It's amazing. And my character is crazy. You know what? The hardest part about my character is not, it's not the martial arts Not the part. fighting, not, not the, the martial arts. That That's comes easy natural. for me. Even exactly. horseback riding, I can, I'm very athletic. I yeah, can, yeah, I can you can pick that, that up. Yeah, pick that up. The hardest part is my character. It's just really hard. You know, the thing is like, yeah, I can play angry. No problem. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, know, you can, can be violent. I can play violent, no problem. But the death of this character, think of Joker. Oh, Heath Ledger. And Joaquin Phoenix. Oh. Combine that. Combine those two Jokers. Dude. And go even deeper and darker and more evil than that. That's kind of scary. Because they went straight method for that. Yeah. So imagine how much more evil the Joker can be. That's my character. So you're having to dig deep. Way, way deep. You have to go method. I can't even dig that deep because I'm not that person. I don't have anything that evil Right, you felt in me. guilty about bullying people when you were young, yeah. so. Much more this, much more this character, the things that he does, the things that he I mean just evil. Evil. He, he crosses evil, those lines. He crosses every freaking line. Evil personified. Yeah, yeah, evil really. personified, yeah. We're not talking about like demonic evil. That's right. easy. Right, That's, right, right, I mean, right, 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 right. Just like yeah, yeah, yeah. Halloween. Yeah. Halloween. No, this is not Halloween. This is human evil. This is dark. This is dark. This is the darkest recesses of the human psychology right exactly, here. Exactly. Yeah, really. Yeah. Which actually, I'm actually seeing a psychologist, not because I'm screwed up because of this role, but because not I'm- Only want, because of that. Because I want- <laughs> Yeah, not only because of that. But because I need to understand the death of this character. Because I don't understand the death of this character according to what he should be. And I can't give him any justice- as an actor, if I can't get that deep, at least in terms of understanding him so of I course. can portray him, you know, little things like my expressions when I see something that he likes, because these are not things that I would like. So how do I portray that? How do I even recognize that if that something just passes right by me? Right. How do I cast a you glance at it? might miss that. I might miss that because I don't even look at it in real life, you know? So things like those, you know, and then his arrogance, his confidence, I don't have any of those. Oh, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. I just don't have those. Right. You know, that kind of evil confidence and arrogance and just doesn't come naturally to me. And it's really, really hard method acting for me. So I have to dig really deep. I have to do a lot of research. I need help from a lot of people. And I've been reaching out to a lot of people to help me out. This sounds like the biggest challenge of your career so far. Biggest. By far. Biggest, by far. Even after PMA, even after opening all these gyms, even after making millions of dollars and losing millions of dollars. Biggest challenge. Even after getting in the cage, I, I see fighting. This, I see this as the biggest challenge because I want to I wanna do justice to this. I want to make it good. You want to become the world champion of, this, evil. of evil. Of evil. Exactly. In, Personified. In this, in, this, in this series, you know. 
It's a big role too, you know, and it's a, it's a pivotal role in the series. It's a catalyst for the main character. You know, my character is what drives her nuts. Right. Basically. Right. It's the foil. It, it, it drives her to the dark side of herself. Oh, interesting. So if I don't, if I'm not convincing right. about it, no one's going to believe it. So it's my job to make my character as convincing as possible. I'm getting nervous just, just hearing about it. I'm excited. I know. Because it's waters have never treaded. Dude. And, um, um, and you're just getting pushed into this dark pool. I love it. I mean, I even I even tried to turn it down in the beginning. After I read the script, I told my um my producer, I told him like, I don't think I can do this. This is I it's, I can't. I just I can't. I can't. Yeah, do I you know I, I I just can't do this. I this can't is, get this dark. I can't get this dark. Yeah. And he told me like Vince, you nailed this. I can't let you not take this role because this role is the best thing for your career. Yeah. You nail this and your career will skyrocket. Will catapult. Yeah. You will be the go-to bad guy of, you know, not just the Philippine cinema, but the world cinema. Think of the bad guys in uh, like say The Raid. Now he's in every freaking movie, you know, in Hollywood and all over the world. Think of the bad guy in Squid Games, the gangster guy. You yeah. Know, he's everywhere now. Think about the bad guy in a lot of these things like even Danny Trejo. Right. And that's oh, brother. for sure. Yeah. Holy yeah, yeah, moly. Yeah. You know, yeah, that's cat- a classic character. Catap- yeah, yeah, catapulted his career, and um, that's sort of my role model in terms of this character too, like being that kind of scene stealer kind of character. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. So in two days, you'll be flying out. So we're actually flying out tomorrow midnight. Oh, really? So this is very similar to the Tiger King. Yeah. Right before you are red, flying red out, eye. we are red making eye. magic happen. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> we're making history happen. Yeah, fly- doing the red eye. I've also a bunch of projects piling up for 2024. I know. We talked so, yeah. about that a little bit off the air before. 2024 is going to be a crazy year for this yeah. man, Vincent Soberana. Crazy year. Yeah. It's going to make up for my uh, relaxing 2023. Exactly. Oh, man. That's beautiful. Yeah. I can't wait to come visit you. We're definitely going to fly out to the Philippines next Ab- year. Absolutely. Since you're a budding real estate mogul, you are a real estate mogul over there. Yeah. You said you have some, uh, you have some properties that we can stay at. Yeah, I've been uh, that well. Twenty twenty three and like late twenty twenty two, I've been um, spending a lot of time like um, buying and selling properties. Yeah, well, mostly buying, mostly buying okay. and buying and renting out my properties. Right. Yeah, so I bought a bunch of homes and renting them out. Uh, it's good. It's a good side hustle. Sarah has her side hustle. I got my side hustle. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. Please keep one open for us. <laughs> At least a little room. Yeah. Yeah. I got. I got one for you. I just bought a nice little townhouse. It's not actually little. It's pr- quite. Uh, yeah, I saw it's it. It's, big. it's yeah. not small. It's yeah. a beautiful townhouse yeah. in a beautiful yeah. area of the Philippines. Cool area, yeah. Looks so, like sunny Southern California, actually. Yeah, and I'm uh, I'm gonna have it rented out, but uh, not yet. I want to furnish it a little bit, right? Some stuff for it. No, no hurry. So before before that, we'll come. We'll come help you out a little bit. And Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Exactly. Thank you so much for coming in here. Are oh, you welcome? A night before you fly out for the red eye, <laughs> uh, start this wonderful, crazy adventure of yours. Thank you so much for digging deep and sharing all these amazing stories from this crazy life of yours. And yeah. you know, as we mentioned, this is literally just the beginning. We even didn't touch upon so many different things because yep. because there's just too much. But yeah, we got a yeah. little glimpse. Life is always resetting if you let it. After you're done filming on this thing and, you know, you're going to have so many other projects when you're back in Taiwan next year, we'll come and do part two and talk about the post Sarah. Yeah. And there'll yeah. be more stories to tell for sure. Yeah. Hopefully I'll be done filming by, uh, by mid next year. So. Okay. 
look forward to seeing you in the Philippines and then back here again. Thank you. To follow thank up. You, thank you for having me in the show. It's a lot of fun. Love chatting. I don't get to talk much about myself, you know, except for in times like these. Exactly. Usually it's Sarah that does all the talking, but. Yeah, that's why I appreciate it, man. Really appreciate you coming here and sharing all these stories and, you know, having good time spending it with you, you know, while you've been here as well, enjoying yeah. some jazz, watching our friend Roxanne kill yeah. it, kill it on she's the stage some, as well. amazing. So, you know, yeah. there's a lot of great things here in Taiwan for us to do, but we'll continue the party in the Philippines as well. All right. Back and forth. Sounds good. Uh, beautiful. All right. Thanks, so, brother. Thank you, brother. All right. So everyone, we wish you a wonderful, peaceful, peaceful day or get dark if you want. <laughs> happy holidays. <laughs> and happy holidays. Yeah. Exactly. Happy holidays. Happy New Year to everyone. Happy New Year. Yes. We wish you the best for 2024. Thank you, everyone. We will see you again next time. Until then, peace. Peace. Out. Out.